Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hi, this is Steve. A few weeks ago, we lost Hollywood legend Robert Evans. And if you wanted to find one person to represent all the passion, excess, rule-breaking, and great filmmaking of Hollywood in the 1970s, Bob Evans is your guy. He was the ultimate Hollywood power player, an arrogant, iconoclastic womanizer who partied with Nicholson and battled with Coppola. Discovered as an actor poolside at the Beverly Hills Hotel, Evans went from failed movie star to the head of Paramount Pictures and turned that failing studio into a Hollywood hit machine with movies like The Odd Couple, Love Story, Godfather 1 and 2, and of course the film we're talking about this week on The Cinephiles. Chinatown. Directed by Roman Polanski and starring Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway, and the great John Huston, Chinatown is a gritty mystery with all the twists and turns of a classic film noir combined with the ambiguity and emotional complexity that is the hallmark of 70s filmmaking. So if you haven't seen this remarkable film, take a journey down the dark corridors of the internet to cinephiles.net where you can buy or stream Chinatown along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. Then come back on Friday to hear John and I break down one of the most mysterious mysteries in the history of cinema, Roman Polanski's Chinatown. Do you know me? Well, uh, I think I would have remembered. Have we ever met? Well, no. Never? Never. That's what I thought. You see, I'm Mrs. Evelyn Mulray. You know Mr. Mulray's wife? And since you agree with me that we've never met before, you must also agree with me that I've never hired you to do anything, certainly not spy on my husband. I see you like publicity, Mr. Giddies. Well, you're going to get it. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, its history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California, where this movie takes place. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, uh, writer, producer, and host over at Collider and the Top Ten and Cinephiles. No, that's the one I'm on now. And the Geek Buddies and the Deep Cut, uh, and certainly this one that I enjoy the most. And this is going to be... An interesting conversation we were talking off mic, Steve, because this film that we're about to talk about is a very important film in the history of California, a very important film in the history of film itself, but yet it's not necessarily one of the favorites, one of our favorite films that we run to and watch over and over and over again. For either of us. Yeah. That's what's strange is there was time where, you know, French Connection and Searchers are really your films, but not so much mine. Right. There have been other films like, uh, what, what yeah, was the, uh, uh, one recently? Across America, Lost in America. Oh, Lost in America, totally my film, but yes. not your film. This one, I mean, I appreciate the hell out of this film. Yeah. I totally understand why it's important. I totally understand why it's well made, but I don't go back to it, just yeah. as you said. Yeah. And the film we're talking about, of course, is Chinatown. And the reason we're talking about today is we lost the iconic, great, fascinating <laughs> character that is or was Robert Evans, who passed away just a few weeks ago. Hello, this is my movie. Yeah. 
he so so in prep for this i decided to re-listen to the kid stays in the picture which is his autobiography it's great book it is what was so funny about listening to it was i you know normally i'm going to take lots of notes and sure and i really didn't because it's just filled with his character and and for those of you who don't know about robert evans he is like to me the archetypal hollywood 60s 70s producer guy yeah down to the womanizing self-aggrandizing style cocaine uh passion anger controversy like Mm. everything you can think about when you picture that guy that guy is robert evans yeah i've been shot down bloody trampled accused threatened disgraced betrayed scandalized maligned tough you bet your ass it is but i ain't complaining nothing comes easy resolve fuck them fuck them all must have been an incredible pain to work with. Oh, yeah. But certainly an incredible character in the history of Hollywood and someone that is fun to enjoy from the outside. And honestly, I would have loved to have met him. Yes. I me mean, too. that would have been fascinating. I don't know that I would have wanted to work for him. No. Of course, if Robert Evans had called me up and said, baby, baby, <laughs> I want to make a movie with you, I would have said, yes, sir. Yeah. Then three months later when he goes, you're off the picture. <laughs> you're off <baby."> the picture. <laughs> it's mine now. Um, so I'm going to give a quick yeah, – and, 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 and the thing is, I actually we're actually going to do two bios today, which we don't normally do because we also have a first-time director, mm. and we got to talk about him as well, yeah. and that's Roman Polanski. But, but starting with Robert Evans, he's born in 1930 in New York up towards Harlem, and his dad, which I find interesting, is a dentist, Jewish family, and he's one of the few dentists that worked with – African Americans in Harlem, and he had both. He he would treat uh, you know all races. Anyone who came to his offices, he would treat. And there was a lot of controversy, and a lot of people who would not go to his office because African Americans had sat in his chair. Jesus. So that's where that's where Robert Evans starts off, and he really does want to be an actor. And as a kid, he works on radio. He does over three hundred radio shows before he's eighteen. But then nothing, and acting doesn't work out for him. He's just completely not successful, goes in the women's apparel business with his brother. He's off in uh, Los Angeles on a business trip, sitting by the Beverly Hills pool. And this is the story. This is what he says. This is what he says. Well, I mean, the, some of the facts we know are true, which yeah. is that, uh, so he says that Norma Shearer, who's a famous Hollywood actress, sees him by the pool and says, you should play my dead husband, Irving Thalberg, in the upcoming film, Man of a Thousand Faces, which is the Lon Chaney story mm. starring Jimmy Cagney. Just spots him, asks him if he's an actor. You should play my husband. And he does. That's yeah. his first movie role. Is that really how he got the movie? I don't, I don't know. Say. I don't know. <laughs> but he did. And he uh, was then his next big role, uh, Daryl Zanuck saw him and said, look, he's got to play Pedro Romero in The Sun Also Rises based on the Hemingway book. And this is the most elegant, most famous, most powerful, and most passionate Spanish uh, matador Mm. in Spain. And everyone goes, including Hemingway, including Ava Gardner, including everyone's in the film, this Jewish kid from New York (laughs) should not play Pedro Romero. And you know what uh, Daryl Zanuck apparently said? What? The kid stays in the picture. (laughs) That is the title Uh of his book. And at that moment, he decided that he wanted to be Daryl Zanuck. Wow. He wanted to be the person who had the power right. to say the kid stays in the picture. And he did a bunch of movies at this time. He's like in the Ten Commandments. He's mm-hmm. in all sorts of stuff, but doesn't really succeed as an actor. Mm-hmm. By the way, he was so – this is what he says. And again, this is a Robert Evans story. Yeah. He says that in out of spite 
for Ernest Hemingway, who did not want him in The Sun Also Rises, he slept with uh, Margot Hemingway. His uh, Wow. That's his daughter or granddaughter, I think. I think granddaughter. Granddaughter. Yeah. So, you know, that's Robert Evans. Jesus. And if you listen to this book, there is a lot of yeah. the ladies. There's a lot of, uh, yes. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> He's um, a boatman, what they say nowadays, <laughs> I think. Um, he So he decides he wants to be a producer. And with and he try, you know he tries to option some material he tries to do some plays but without actually having produced anything yeah uh, Charles uh, Bloodhorn Bloodhorn yeah. who was the head of Gulf and Western and that owned Paramount says I'm going to hire you to be the head of Paramount Studios <laughs> so he goes from an actor to kind of a wannabe producer to being the head of the studio. And Paramount at the time is in deep trouble. It's like number nine, and it's you know really had one bomb after another. Yeah. And the reality is, is despite his lack of experience, Evans puts together an unbelievable run of hits and completely turns the studio around. Here's some. Here's a list of what he brought into the studio: Barefoot in the Park, mm-hmm. The Odd Couple. The Odd Couple is really the one that's really started to turn the tide. Mm-hmm. And then he brings in Roman Polanski to make Rosemary's Baby, yeah, which is a monster, huge hit. Goes then the Italian job, True Grit, Love Story, which is a gigantic hit starring his soon to be wife, Ally McGraw. Ally McGraw. Um, which is, it's a perfectly fine movie. Yeah. It's not one I think that we'll ever do on the Cinephiles. Um, did Harold and Maude, which is a fan, that is one we'll do on the Cinephiles. Okay. That is a fantastic movie. That's your film. Uh, not your film? <laughs> no. Um, okay. Well, that'll be an interesting one down the yes, line. Yes, yes. Uh, and then, of course, The Godfather. Yeah. And The Godfather 2. Serpico, Save the Tiger, The Conversation, and what we're going to talk about today, Chinatown, which he also produced. Yeah. I mean, that is not only is it an unbelievable run of films, but it is, that's the 70s. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's, that's why The Kid Stays in the Picture is such a fantastic book for those conversations, those uh, uh, stories, to hear about how those films came to be and what was involved in them, and to kind of like sit back and be overwhelmed by an incredible run of oh, yeah. films, and you have to, no matter what you feel about him personally, you cannot argue his taste, and you cannot argue the, the that he understood the public, and maybe because he hadn't been in a studio system for 20 years, he was more on the ground, right. understanding, knowing people, seeing people, talking with people, having connection with people that helped him figure out what the people wanted to see, or what the people were, were searching for at their at their movie theater, especially in a time of transition in the 70s. Well, and his unlike all the other studio heads, his connection wasn't to the old Hollywood system, right. it was to the new young people, it was yeah. to Warren Beatty and Jack Nicholson and, and Coppola and all right. of those people, that's who he found interesting, and he was tenacious and argumentative and difficult and passionate and also high on coke and you know made a lot of and of course uh, i think it's 1980 he gets arrested for trafficking in cocaine which he you know pleads down to a misdemeanor and gets off with making a uh, psa against drug use now (laughs) i don't really know the details of the case right but that really sounds like a rich guy yeah, you know that's that's when you got a lot of money and a lot of fame. You know, you could get away with some stuff. Yeah, 
married seven times. Yes. Uh, Orson Welles says that one of the characters in Other Side of the Wind is making fun of him. And of course, Dustin Hoffman in Wag the Dog, that is him doing his Robert Evans impression. So if you want a sense of who this guy is, (laughs) that's what Dustin Hoffman thinks. There's also a fantastic documentary based on The Kid Stays in the Picture. Which I've never seen. Oh, and Robert narrates most of it. Yes, I'm sure he does. Yes, with with, (laughs) uh, weird ways of animation. Like (laughs) things are moving in and out of certain... It's a fantastically fun documentary if you're into film. I think... I think Kid Stays in the Picture and Easy and Easy Rider Raging Bulls, yeah. those are the two film, the uh, uh, 70s, for me, uh, 70s books that you can read about that time that are very, very interesting if you want to get into any kind of stuff about yeah, the I, 70s. Yeah, I, I think for those of you who really want to call yourself a cinephile, Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, kind of a must-read. Yeah. I, I have issues with the book. I thought about trying to reread the Chinatown sections mm. of the book again for this, but then... But one of the problems with Audible is finding just those sections oh, yeah, would have yeah. been really hard, and so I, I couldn't quite couldn't quite make that happen. Right, Roman Polanski. So this is a complicated one. This is fun because, well, not fun. I'm sorry, I used the wrong term. This is interesting because this is also a guy who's got a history with women, young women, or whatever. But with the Robert Evans, he's a character. Polanski. This is a way more serious situation. It's serious in every way. Yeah, I mean, like the story, and the story is is really tragic, really scary, really upsetting. And and this is the thing I'm going to say. There are things to absolutely condemn Roman Polanski about and I'm not don't think we should shy away from that absolutely. at all. There are things to absolutely feel sorry for Roman Polanski because he went through things in his life that are as tragic as you can imagine. And he's a great director. Yes. Like I can't not say that this man is an unbelievable and how you reconcile what we're going to talk about a little bit is that's really up to you. I mean, that's how yeah. you figure out how you're going to do it. Uh, he's, he's born in 1933 uh, in Paris, actually. He's a French-Polish Jew. His family moved back from Paris to Poland in 36. Nazis have invaded in 39, moved his family into the Krakow ghetto. Um, he was, at six years old, kicked out of school because Jews were no longer to study allowed to study in school, mm. forced to wear a, you know an armband with a blue star on it. He saw his father taken away in front of him by the Nazis and marched off to a death camp. His, he ran up to his father, and he's a little kid, crying and screaming, and his father claimed not to know him, yelled at him and said, get lost, to save his life. Right. You know, he, uh, he saw his mother uh, uh, taken away. Uh, she was taken to Auschwitz, where she was killed. Wow. He saw women shot in the street in front of him. He was hidden in foster homes. I mean, it's very much, you know, it's Anne Frank. It's it's what we just saw in Jojo Rabbit. It's, yes. It's that he was one of these little kids that some uh, some Catholic Polish uh, citizens managed to protect. They treated They raised him as a Catholic kid. He went through catechism. He learned to say all the prayers and all that stuff, pretending to be a Catholic. And, and But also, there were t- there's a story where he was out and found by ger- German soldiers, and I can't tell from what I've read if they thought knew that he was Jewish, but they played a game where they practiced uh, shooting at him with guns. So, you know, where he could have died and they, they basically, you know, strapped him down and fired at him, but didn't shoot him. I mean, that's unbelievable yeah. trauma. And his father actually survived the war and they were reunited after Poland was liberated. And then immediately he went into his love of movies and he just absolutely was obsessed with movies, studied film in school, um, made some unbelievable short films. I don't know if you've ever seen some of Polanski's no, shorts. No. They're really like, if you want to look at like, here's a student filmmaker that's got real talent. It's Roman Polanski. Wow. Makes Knife in the Water in 1962, which is a great film. Repulsion in 65 with Catherine Deneuve is an amazing film. 
cul-de-sac, which I've actually never seen, Fearless Vampire Killers, which is a weird film, and then met Sharon Tate then, and makes Rosemary's Baby in 1968, which is a massive, huge hit. And then uh, Sharon Tate and a whole bunch of her friends are killed in his house by the Manson family in 1969. Right. And this is, for those of you who just saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, this is the story that you're seeing, except... It didn't end that way. It ended with Sharon Tate being murdered. And I mean, just the, the, tra- so you think about this half of his life. Yeah. This is unbelievable trauma that this person has survived. And I can't imagine the, the violation of the home that you bought being this site of these grisly murders where your pregnant wife is killed. I mean, just horrible. Yeah. Leaves the US, doesn't want to be in LA anymore, goes to make uh, Macbeth in Europe. Have you seen this Macbeth? I haven't. I his films are films I don't run. I don't run to see. I have very complicated feelings with him, so I don't know. I mean, I may go on a run one weekend and just watch them all back to back to back. But the Macbeth I hesitate for because this is the time also where he was experimenting with weird approaches to film, and so I don't know if I want to see his version of Macbeth. It like is. This. I saw it a long time ago. It's very sexual, apparently, and really dark. Yeah. It is the most dark, painful, horrible, you know, vicious version of Macbeth you could imagine. Which is, by the way... A dark play. Yes, yeah. regardless of what some how some people direct it, or, and especially having the comic relief in there, which is what I appreciated about the Fassbender version a few years ago that removed that comic relief and made it just a just dark heavy. play. I think it's a dark, heavy play that has a lot of things to say, and I like when they don't put the comic relief in there because the, I think it's one of Shakespeare's kind of hearkening back to Titus Andronicus kind of period in his life. Right. Yep. So, so he comes back to L.A. to make Chinatown. And then in 1977, he is arrested uh, at the Beverly Wilshire mm. for drugging and raping a 13-year-old girl. Yeah. So, and there is, seems to be no question that this is what he did. He was convicted. Yeah. He, and right before sentencing, he fled to Europe, where he's been ever since, despite many attempts to extradite him. And despite the fact that he is a convicted rapist, yeah. child rapist. Um, he has continued to make films. Some of them, I still will say, some of them great films yeah. for the next 40 years. Mm-hmm. And it's still in Europe. Yeah. You know? And so what do we do with this? You know, for some people out there, they're going to say, I will never watch any of his films. Right. And I totally understand that. For some people, the, you know, they say it doesn't matter what he did and we, we keep the art. I, you know, that's really a personal preference. But I don't think we can talk about Chinatown without at least discussing, you know, at least mm. at least putting this stuff out there we sure. can't we can't whitewash it and say this never happened no and we've never done that i think we've no. always addressed the direct the foibles of directors and actors and creators uh, head on as a podcast and that's always been i think one of the positive things about our show and we don't take sides in that way in terms of like because obviously we're going to talk about this person yeah. and review their or discuss their film so that's our approach to it but we'll we will definitely say if something we don't like something or if something is wrong yeah. or something shouldn't have happened we're very upfront about that yeah. you know Chaplin's not an easy person to no. talk about either well the, so, I yeah. mean frankly there's a lot of people yeah. on so, I mean Polanski's is particularly nasty sure you know but so is Bill Cosby's I mean right. there, there's right. some some nasty people whose art I really admire or admired yeah you know and I and I. I have a hard time figuring think, this out. I think the most difficult one for me is Weinstein because I think he's an abhorrent human being from top to bottom. Yet you can't deny the incredible films he brought into our world in the 90s during the independent film movement. So many people would not have careers without that guy. 
and yet he's one of the most disgusting humans on the planet. To- totally agree. Here, here is here is why I don't have as much of a problem mm. because I don't watch. I it it doesn't bother bother me to watch a Tarantino movie or watch Shakespeare in Love or mm-hmm. to watch a Will Smith movie and think and the Will Smith Kevin Smith movie <laughs> totally different thing. Yes, to watch a Kevin Smith movie and and worry about Weinstein. Mm. Like uh, it, to me, he's a scumbag, and these movies are very separate. Right, I can't listen to a Bill Cosby monologue. Yeah, because it is that's him. Yeah. That and that and I had such belief mm-hmm. and such love. I listened to those albums over and over again. I yeah. adored him, and he was selling a bill of goods about who he was. Right. That is not. That is such a fucking lie. And I can't. I don't think I could listen to it. Mm. I don't think I could do it. Why do we? Why do you think we forgive? Pol- or not forgive, but I why don't do forgive th- him. Right. But why do you think we can work with Polanski it's, as a society? Because like even the Oscars gave it to Adrian Brody and nominated the pianist. Yeah, and, and, and he and won nominate, yeah. for the pianist. Yeah, I don't. I think Polanski won for best director for the did. pianist. And you're like, how is this possible, considering what he's done? And I, and the woman has come out to speak about it as well as yeah. an adult recently, you know, because yeah. Tarantino brought it up and stuff. Well, and she and she, I mean, she is as it seems from what I've read from her, and I don't want to even mm. mention her name sure, because sure, sure, sure. she seems to be as angry at the media, yes. and the world that has to ru- continue to ruin her life, right. As she is at Polanski for what he did to her forty two years ago, right? What a surprise! You know? Some people use other people for their celeb, call celeb or whatever. So I don't. I mean, I literally am sitting here on our podcast yeah. saying I don't know how to navigate this. Either, I don't think there. I, I I remember we had when we had Kim Masters on the show and yeah. we asked her this question because yeah. she's been so involved in the Weinstein and all the stuff that's happened lately. Yeah. And what she said is, and she said it very frankly, was, "Well, we don't take art off the walls." Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? I, that's kind of how I feel. Yeah. Like when we talked about crimes and misdemeanors, which is one of my favorite podcasts yeah. of ours. Um, you know, there's shit in that movie that you have to think about Woody Allen and his yeah. behavior. But it's still a great film. It's one of my favorite films. So. I, feel like we, I feel like we we could have done more Woody by now. Yeah. But we also have hesitations because of all the stuff around him. Yeah. So because there are some great films to discuss in the Woody Allen resume, man. So yeah. but yeah, but the, they'll come up when they're supposed to come up. But she makes a great point. We don't take art off the walls. It's very very true. And you know it goes all around. Look, Kennedy cheated on his on on Jackie Kennedy all over the place. Uh, Martin Luther King did the same thing. You know, you've got people with some kind of unsavory or I don't know morally uh, questionable decisions and history yet we still revere them so it's a very weird line to walk i guess we're all just humans yeah well you saw the thing that obama put out yes. recently where yes. he said you can't ex- i don't i can't quote him exactly mm-hmm. but don't, don't expect these people to be perfect no yeah. one's going to be perfect no we all going to be have flaws yeah now including the people judging other people for not being perfect. oh yeah oh yeah that's I mean, the horrible truth of it yeah and, and the thing is i i think the one thing i think is is that there's a difference in the way we look at the past at Thomas Jefferson or at Woodrow Wilson or at FDR or Kennedy or people like that or Roman Polanski and what we do when we look in the future. Right. You know what I mean? Want for the future. Is that is that we go like okay, you know, our standards have now changed mm-hmm. and we're not going to do it this way anymore. Yeah. But we could but we could still like this movie. Yes. Absolutely. And speaking of this movie, there is one other reason why we have picked it, and that is it is a pick of three patrons on Patreon. Matthew Norris, Jake Blackman, and Matthew Hasso. Hasso! <laughs> You've got a few in there. I'll pick Chinatown as one of their Patreon picks. And first of all, thank you so much for your support. Yes. And if you want to have your film picked to be discussed on the Cinephiles, you can go to patreon.com slash the Cinephiles. I like the one of them's named Jake. I like that. It seems appropriate for Chinatown. It does seem appropriate. 
a little bit of pre-production. Yeah. I didn't know that Robert Town, which is where this whole thing started, the screenwriter, I didn't know he was roommates with Jack Nicholson. <laughs> they were roommates during all the years of failure. You know, wow. because Jack was around a long time, yes, and not getting traction. He worked as a writer, and he did all sorts of stuff. Mm. I mean, you know, he he wrote the the monkeys movie Head. Yeah. Um, you know, he he was, in, and it's really at the late '60s and Easy Rider that he starts to get discovered. And Robert Town is coming along with him at the same time, and it's in that sort of late '60s era where Town started to come up with the idea for Chinatown. And it came from a couple of places. First of all, it came from he's a he's a native Los Angelino, mm-hmm. and he was looking around something, going, "Wow, this city has changed," and started to think about how the city has changed. At the same time, he started learning about the Water Wars, which is a real piece of Los Angeles history, not just history. It is still part of Los Angeles. Yeah, is true. what we do with our water, and uh, and he also ran and got to be friends with a cop mm-hmm. who worked the Chinatown beat. And that he asked him what it was like to work, and he was working vice in Chinatown. And the cop said, oh, basically, we do as little as possible. And when he asked why, he said, well, Chinatown is so complicated because of all the different dialects, all the different cultures. And there was really strong influence of the, you know, the Tongs, the mm-hmm. Chinese mafia, essentially, that they don't know what to do there. And so they did as little as possible. And these ideas of how LA's changed, the water wars and Chinatown, start bubbling around and Robert Evans, who we've already talked about, comes to Robert Town and says, I want you to write, I'm going to pay you $175,000 to write The Great Gatsby. <laughs> and Town turns him down. Yeah, He says, I don't want to be the guy who screws up an American classic. <laughs> and he kind of felt the movie is unmakeable. And uh, I think the I think the two versions that have been made prove that point. Yeah, I don't think it's, you know what's funny? That of all the great books of American literature, uh-huh. As we said about movies, that's not my book. It's not my book either. So. I don't get. I mean, I've read it. I, it's it's, but you know, compared to Steinbeck and Hemingway and yeah, Faulkner right. and all these, like I don't. Great Gatsby's not for me. I could give a shit about rich white rich people, man. I like rich people sometimes. Uh, I mean, the the, the 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 what's it about? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't do it for me. So I much. can't th- I can't get this girl the whole time. I can have everything else, but I can't get this girl. Okay. Um, Town wrote hundreds of pages. Hmm. Hundreds, I think there was 300 plus pages. The script that he finally turns in is 186 pages. And uh, Evans wants Polanski. And Jack Nicholson wants Polanski. And Polanski doesn't want to do it. And he doesn't want to come back to LA. He's still, you know, really upset, obviously, yeah. by the Manson murders. Right. And because this is just four years later, three, four years later when this starts happening. Yeah. Finally, they convince him to come back. And he says, well, I'll only do it if I get to really work on the script with Robert Town. And so they move in together for six weeks. Wow. Six weeks of two guys smoking and I'm sure drinking and mm. doing drugs and yelling at each other solid. Wow. This movie has a ton of arguments behind it. I mean, this is, and Evans believed in arguments, and Polanski believed in arguments, and Jack Nicholson and Town, they all believed that if there wasn't a lot of contention, you wouldn't get good work. And they fight and fight, and they finally kind of get the script into some kind of shape. It's the middle of a heat wave, by the way, in LA, and they had no air conditioning. Um, And they still couldn't figure out an ending. And they started shooting with no ending. By the way, the original script never even went to Chinatown. Wow. Yeah. Would you like to get into the movie? Yeah, let's do it. I love the sepia tone Paramount uh, logo and the credits. 
and that great Jerry Goldsmith score. Yeah. I wonder if that's one of the first times they've ever done that to kind of put you Mm. in the mood for a film. That's a great... That's a great question because you kind yeah. of do that in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right. There's sort of some of that like uh, – it's an interesting thing because did we have nostalgia for the old days of movies yeah. before the late 60s, early 70s? That's what I wonder because you would have – remember, that's entertainment. There were three separate installments of that right. and it was about going back in time to right. like remember the great musicals. And so I think we started developing nostalgia for it in the 70s yeah. as film was changing. And the movie opens with some still photographs of people having sex outdoors, and we cut to Burt Ward, (laughs) who I love. I think we've already talked about how much we love him in very in Rocky and other. You mean Burt Young? Burt Young, sorry, not Burt Ward. Ward, Not that's Burt Ward is Batman. (laughs) (laughs) You know what's funny? It says Burt Ward in my notes. (laughs) So clearly, this this mental fair enough. I would not do well in the (laughs) schmodown. But holy shnikes, Batman. <laughs> I sleep with my wife. So it's obvious that these are pictures of his wife. He gets upset, yeah. you know, goes to the Venetian blinds, which I just love. He's so dramatic here. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, it is a big deal. All right, Curly, enough's enough. You can't eat the Venetian blinds. I just had them installed on Wednesday. There's Jack Nicholson looking stylish as Jake Giddies. He offers him a drink. And he's basically trying to get Bert out of the out of the office, like because this is what he does. He's a private eye, and the fact is, while we might want to, this is what Robert Town says. Well, we might want to romanticize all the cool things that private eyes do. All the detectives he know, eighty five percent of their business is this right here. Yeah, taking dirty pictures of people screwing around on their mates. Yep. And he gets him out, and just as he gets him out, in walks. A woman elegantly dressed with the cigarette and the cigarette holder and a man in a suit there. And this woman says she is Mrs. Mole Ray. And this is Diane Ladd. Yeah. Um, which I totally forgot that she's in this movie. Young Diane Ladd. My husband, I believe, is seeing another woman. I love Nicholson's reaction. Because it's sort of, oh boy. Yeah. Here's here another <laughs> one. And then simultaneously doing... Of being a good businessman yes, and doing what you were supposed to do. It's good money. And she, he basically at first tries to convince her to let sleeping dogs lie. Mrs. Mulray, do you love your husband? Yes, of course. Then go home and forget everything. And she's not going to do it. She needs to know. And he goes, okay. And he asks for the guy's first name. And he, she says, Hollis Mulray. And he immediately goes, water and power? The chief engineer of the Department of Water and Power. Now, John, do you know the chief engineer of the Department of Water <laughs> no. and Power in Los Angeles? I, I don't know anybody. Where, I just send a check. <laughs> apparently, apparently, uh, Jake Giddies, he's really on top of all the administrations of the of L.A. Which is not unbelievable at that time, I imagine, because, you know, if he's doing this and he's working in L.A., he has to be aware of who the power sure. players are in L.A. So yeah. makes um, sense. And, uh, and he agrees to take the gig. And we go off to a meeting of the Department of Water and Power where they're discussing a dam. And this is where we're going to get into the water politics yeah. of this movie. That's what I find surprising about this film because it can get a bit dense about the water politics in L.A. at the time. Well, it's so dense, in fact, that – and this is something that I would like to try to do. Yeah. I don't know, having thought about this movie a lot over the last couple of days – I don't know if I still understand what the hell's going on. <laughs> and so what I – because there's so many twists and turns yeah, yeah, yeah. is that I want to – and and it, it's very possible that 
we there is no knowing what yeah. actually is going on. Mm. But I want to try to construct it. What's happening at this meeting is there's a discussion about whether or not to build this dam. Right. Not entirely sure who the dam is for, but we invite Hollis Mulray up to speak and Jake responds, and he goes up to talk about how he, the chief engineer of the LADWP, is against building this dam. In case you've forgotten, gentlemen, over 500 lives were lost when the Vanderlip Dam gave way. Which is actually a reference to the St. Francis Dam disaster of 1928, Mm. where um, a dam uh, collapsed and 600 people were killed in Los Angeles, including a whole bunch of kids. And here is the thing where I was totally, completely wrong about. So, you know, we've kind of come across things like this before where we've done movies that have something to do with historical stuff and said, like, look, don't take the movies too seriously because they're not accurate. There are things in the movie that have to do with real things, Mm -hmm. but nothing in this movie is actually like my impression was that it was more real than it was. Right. And here's the big mistake that I made in my brain. Uh, Mulholland, William Mulholland, which Mulholland Drive, big road in L.A. He was a very famous person in the founding of L.A. In my brain, I always went, that's John Huston. Oh, right. It's not John Huston. Right. It's Mulray. Yes. He is Mulholland. Is that, and because I had a negative view of Mulholland as like kind of one of the robber baron founders of L.A. That's not who he was at all. He was an engineer. Seems like a really good guy. He is, uh, William Mulholland came to the U.S. in the late 1800s. He was an Irish immigrant. He taught himself the math, the engineering, everything necessary to be a great engineer. And he is really, in a lot of ways, the guy who created modern Los Angeles. Because he, in addition to supervising the initial sort of water distribution in L.A., and what they say in this scene that we're in a desert – is true. Without water, there's no Los Angeles. Yep. And he's also the guy who built the Los Angeles aqueduct, which went way up to the Owens Valley, up in the uh, Southern Sierras, to bring water all the way down to LA. There were people that compared this aqueduct, which built took 10 years to build from 1903 to 1913. Mm-hmm. There are people that compare it to the Panama Canal. Wow. Now, I don't think it's, I don't think it's at huh. that level. But this was a huge, huge thing. Very controversial in all sorts of ways. Yes. Massive amounts of money were made out of this process. Massive amounts of people really pissed off. There really have been what are called the water wars over decades uh, from Los Angeles to the Owen Valley to the uh, San Joaquin Valley and all yeah. this stuff. is very. This is very serious California politics. But really, it sounds like Mohan was a pretty good guy. Yeah. And he was. he literally went and did an inspection of that dam the day it collapsed. Wow. And he said, it's okay. And that's 1928, and that is the end of William Mulholland's career. Wow. And rightly so. Yeah. And so that's what we're referencing when we're in this scene. And so Mulray is against this dam. And the actor, by the way, playing Mulray is uh, Daryl Zwirling. Mm-hmm. And he just says, this dam is too dangerous. I'm not going to build it. I'm not going to make the same mistake twice. And all the farmers there are pissed off. They yeah. boo and income a bunch of sheep. Yeah. Because <laughs> we bring sheep to our meeting. <laughs> Jack, uh, Jack really likes what is going on. And this one farmer says... You see- And that actor, I looked at him going like, who is that guy? So familiar. Yeah. Rance Howard. It is Ron Howard's dad. Yep. I was looking at it. It's like, is that Bruce Dern? No. Is that, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's, once, you, once I read it, who it was, it's really obvious. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game 
Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. And now we cut to the dam site. And there is a great, great shot of the car driving down on the dirt road uh, in front of the dam. And Jake is watching. He watches Mole Ray through his binoculars. And um, he's walking around on the dirt and sees this kid on like a sway back horse walk right up. And they kind of talk. He's still in this binoculars POV. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the kid rides away. And Mulray goes over to his car and pulls out some kind of big ledger book. And what's so interesting about this at this moment is that we're in a detective movie. It's a mystery. Mm -hmm. And the detective is trying to solve the mystery of what this guy is doing. And what that guy is doing is trying to solve a mystery. Yeah. So it's a mystery within a mystery right now. And then we're behind Jack's head as he drives away. We're going to spend a lot of time behind his head. Mm -hmm. Behind his head is a, a visual pattern in this film. And there are two things about it that are interesting. One is, is that Polanski wanted us to be with the detective discovering things Mm. as he discovered them. And so that is why we're always over his shoulder experiencing things as Jake Giddies does. The other thing is this film was in Panavision, which is the really widescreen anamorphic format. And the reason, and Evans hated that because all the old movies weren't in that anamorphic Mm, format. He was like, I want to be like one of the old movies. And the reason Polanski wanted this is if you're going to be over someone's shoulders, it's better to have a really wide image because you can see a lot more Mm. when you're behind Jake than you could in a more, a less wide image. Yeah. And we end up out at the beach somewhere and he's spying on Mulray and Mulray goes down to the beach looking sort of pensive and Mm. Jake climbs down and he's at some kind of a... A pipe, you know, some sort of water, big water pipe. And the, the shots are beautiful. By the way, the, the two cinematographers on this one was Stanley Cortez, who's the first DP, kind of an old school guy, mm-hmm. and didn't get along that well with Polanski. And then Evans was pissed off him because this guy was slow. Mm. And the movie was going really slow and going over budget. So they fire him and bring in John Alonzo, who uh, was a, com- a documentary background, and he shot the rest of the, most of the film. Wow. The film's beautiful. 
Yes, agreed. It's nighttime, kind of sunset. Uh, Jake is sitting there again near this water thing, starts to hear a trickle of water. And then, boom, a whole bunch of water comes out, totally surprising him. And Mulray looks up, um, but doesn't see Jake. Right. It's later. He goes back to the car. Note on the car. Cart says, hey, fight back, L.A., because we're in the middle of a drought. L.A.'s dying of thirst. He opens up a like glove compartment, pulls out a watch, and we see there's a whole bunch of watches, pocket watch, mm-hmm. in the glove compartment. I love this. Great detective stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, wh- what's he doing here? We see him set the watch, walks over to Mulray's car, puts the set pocket watch underneath the tire, and we go, oh. <laughs> Cut to two watches, one of which is broken, and now we know exactly what time that he, he moved. Yeah. Which he was there all night. Yep. So here's the thing about this. One of the themes that we'll see in this movie is the visual motif of duality, where you see two objects, right. one broken, one not, next to each other. So we have the pristine watch and the broken watch. This is our first of these dualities. Yesterday he went to three reservoirs, a men's room at Richfield gas station, and the pig and whistle. The guy's got water on the brain. We see that one of uh, Jake's guys that works for him, a photographer, has taken pictures, yep. and there are pictures with Mulray and another man who is John Houston. Yeah. And all we know is that they had a fight, and they said something that sounded like Apple Corps. Mm-hmm. He gets a phone call that the guy we're looking for, Hollis Mulray, is with the girl, and they are in Echo Park, yeah, Echo which Park. is where we're sitting right now. My yep. house is in Echo Park, and they go to Echo Park Lake, which is it's just one of those weird things to live in L.A. It's like, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a mile and a half from my house. I've been on that lake. I rode a paddle bo- boat right <laughs> around where they were, yeah. and Jake is in the rowboat. He's got a camera, and at first he takes pictures of the other guy in the rowboat, and then he slowly moves over the camera to take pictures of Hollis and a girl. Yep. He drives up to an apartment building, climbs up on the roof, leans over, takes pictures, and there's Mulray with this girl, and he takes pictures of them. This great reflection shot on the lens of his camera, mm-hmm. and just and then he, he kind of slips in a tile, falls off the roof, and they look up. Yeah. Sort of Ben Hurish. <laughs> yeah. And we cut to a newspaper. It's got the headline of Hollis is having an affair. There's a heart-shaped picture. It's him and the girl. He's done it. He, he right. caught him. Right. That's it. Which I think is uh, Polanski's nod to Kane. I had the same thought. Right? Same thought, yeah. Because it's the same kind it's of... caught in love nest with, quote, yeah. singer. With, with, quote, singer. Yeah. And Jake is getting a shave. Yeah. And there's a guy next to him as they're talking about this case, and he kind of disrespects him. Like, that's how you make your living? you got a hell of a way to make a living. Oh? What do you do to make ends meet? Mortgage department, First National Bank. Tell me, did you foreclose on many families this week? We don't publish a record in the paper, I can tell you that. Neither do I. No, you have your press agent do it. You get to see Angry Jack. Yeah. Who is this bimbo, Barney? Is he a regular customer or what? Hey, listen, pal, I make an honest living. People only come to me when they're in a desperate situation. I help them out. I don't kick families out of their houses like you bums down at the bank, Jake. Can I tell you about the guy who maybe like to step down out of the barber chair? I mean, we go outside and discuss it. What do you think? I like the way he does it because it's like it comes out of nowhere, but it's desperate at times. Like, right? Because he's just like... He's he's like a snake when he yeah. bites. He bites. Well, and he's clearly not in control. No, no, no. He he's is, mad. He is super pissed. He is out of control. And the barber's right. trying to settle him down. Right. Going, hey, let me tell you about this joke. I'm going to tell you this joke. And finally sets him back in the chair. Yeah. So uh, Town says that he he wrote this movie for mm-hmm. Jack. 
he obviously knew him really well. Yeah. And this is what he said. He said he wanted he wrote it for Jack's cynicism, for his vanity, which I think is really interesting. Mm, that's fair. Because he's very much a peacock in this yeah. movie, in his clothes and all sorts of things. And he wrote it for his thin skin and his flashes of anger. <laughs> and this is there. the thin skin and the flashes of anger yeah. right there. Makes sense. Uh, and we see that he is pissed as the barber is telling this joke. Mm. It's an off-color joke. Yes. It is more off-color today than it was in 1974. Sure. And more off-color in 74 than it probably was in 1937 when the movie takes place. Yeah. But we cut to Jake, super happy, walking into his office, wanting to tell his buddy. He sends his female secretary out of the world right, room right. so he could tell his buddies this dirty joke, dirty racist joke. Mm. And, of course, we have the classic gag as he tells this joke. They say, hey, hey, Jake, no, no, we got to stop. We got to stop because it's the classic someone is behind you Mm -hmm. and the person behind him is Faye Dunaway, Dunaway, who hears the whole joke. And then it's funny. Last time we saw Faye, we've had three movies with Faye Dunaway. I know how insane that is. Yeah. Well, at this era, How many have we done with Meryl Streep? Well, I don't think we've done. We've never done a Mail Street. That's insane. We've yeah. done three Faye Dunaways before. So, so this goes on the well, here's the other one. Yeah. We've never done a John Houston movie. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. So there's a lot of things in here. Yeah. We just kind of roll with the tide. It's man. just what, you know. I mean, what washes up is what we talk about. Well, <laughs> what washes up in Chinatown is about a lot of things that's washing true. up. And she says Do you know me? Well, uh, I think I would have remembered. I... Have we ever met? Well, no. Never? Never. That's what I thought. You see, I'm Mrs. Evelyn Mulray. You know Mr. Mulray's wife? And since you agree with me that we've never met before, you must also agree with me that I've never hired you to do anything, certainly not spy on my husband. And he says, no use getting tough with me. And she says, I don't get tough. My lawyer does. Yeah. That's a great entrance. Yep. Uh, Robert Evans wanted Jane Fonda for this part. Oh, she'd have been great. It's a totally different thing. It is because, yeah, because I don't. I think Jane might have changed it, especially that ending. I wonder if Jane might have changed the ending to be a more proactive ending by that character. I don't know if I've ever seen Jane Fonda have this weird kind of vulnerability yeah. that Faye Dunaway has in this movie. Yeah, and, 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 and I don't know that she, she might have it in her, but I've never seen that. Also, and to be fair to Jane, it's not that Jane can't play vulnerability. She certainly has oh, sure. in numerous films, but especially Clute. But, oh, yeah. But... Th- all her films kind of almost almost always end with her on top. Yeah. So that would have been a... I wonder if that would have been a change if they got This changed. does not end with Evelyn Moray nope. on top. Nope. No. Uh, by the way, I know we say it in every episode. We don't say it in every episode. Those of you who listen know it. Not only are we going to spoil this, <laughs> but I got to... I, I, I'm trying to construct... I really want to try to construct what the hell is happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so here's what we've had so far. Mm-hmm. We have had a woman pretending to be Mrs. Mulray right. go to hire Jake Giddies, who we later find out is an actress. Yes. And maybe a working girl in other ways, too. Mm-hmm. And then Giddies takes pictures of of Mr. Mulray with a young woman. Yeah. Those pictures end up in the newspaper. It seems fairly clear that Giddies did not put them in the newspaper. Right. Somebody else put them in the newspaper. Then Mrs. Mulray comes to his office and threatens him with a lawsuit. Right. Okay. What the fuck has happened? Because yeah, uh, who hired the actress? Who hired the actress? Uh, who wants to turn the screw on who? Because the young woman we find out later on, because there was nothing. Uh, I don't think we see anything sexual with them, right? 
in well, the pictures? Is, well, this is the other thing. Yeah. What is Hollis doing exactly. with this young woman? Exactly. Because here, and now we're going to we'll find out later. So, so here's yeah. the thing. I, we, sometimes we have to give this extra special yeah, warning. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know we're going to spoil it, but I'm going to spoil it right now. Okay. And this twist is one of the most shocking oh, twists yeah. in film. I, this haunted me so much, this scene, and I'm going to tell you what happens in a scene much later in the movie because we need. I, I feel like we need to do it now <laughs> to try to construct what the hell is happening, sure. which is that the woman that Hollis is with yeah. is in fact both uh, Faye Dunaway's sister and her daughter yeah. because she has been raped repeatedly by her although she claims it wasn't rape, right. by her father, John Houston, who plays Noah Cross. Yeah. So so there is the, she's the product of an incestuous relationship who is for some reason with the man that she is married to, mm-hmm. who then um, John Hillerman, who we're going to meet in a little while, who's the deputy guy in charge of the Department of Water and Power, right. works under Mole Ray, that there's the implication that he hired the girl to hire Giddies to yeah. get the pictures and that probably he's the guy that put it in the newspaper because he wants to destroy Hollis both so he can take his job yeah. which he wants but also so we can have this dam happen yeah and Gettys goes to Hillerman we'll get to it all later I want a guy the guy who who got you to do it who we assume is Noah Cross right Evelyn's dad yes okay <laughs> that sounds it sounds clear to me it's but but here's the thing why <laughs> is Hollis hanging out with this girl right and why is Evelyn going back and talking about suing Giddies mm-hmm. at this moment? Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if I Because understand. she's not in on it, initially. She doesn't know what's happening. So well, she wants to threaten Jake a little bit, but she suspects something is happening. She's just not sure what. But and, why would she... She it, it, mm-hmm. So what her main motivation seems to be, although this, again, is not entirely clear, right. is protect her daughter's sister right. and settle everything down. Right. Why have a big lawsuit where this stuff is going to get investigated? Well, I think you th- you threaten the lawsuit so that you quash all of it coming out. So you just have to threaten. Okay. That's yeah, a first tactic. Right. She's just using a first. This is a first run at the thing. Okay. Yeah. So Giddies is now going, what the hell is going on? Right. So he heads off to Mulray's office. Uh, says he has an appointment, which of course he doesn't. The secretary says, "Well, you you know you can wait." He's out to lunch. He goes, "Oh well, I'll go wait in his office." Mm-hmm. Goes in his office. Beautiful kind of search of his office. Does see Evelyn's picture on horseback. Yeah. yeah. So so he confirms that yes, that is in fact the wife. Right. Um, and kind of looks through the desk drawers, and he finds you know a leather case, a whole bunch of other stuff, and then he finds that same big ledger, what we think it was that Mulray was looking at in the dry riverbed. Yeah. And opens it up, and it says. Tuesday night, Hope passed seven channels used. But we don't know what this means. Yes. And then in comes the deputy chief, this guy we talked about before, John Hillerman, later on Magnum P.I., and a million other things. <laughs> Macadamia nuts. That's <laughs> what I remember, too. It's so funny. He's great. And he's great. It's so interesting, like, these actors who are actually great actors. Yeah. Who are never leading men people, you know, and, and they're going to just play. Like, you have the feeling if you gave him an awesome part, yeah. he'd kill it. Yes, but but and he's great in this. Of course. Oh, Hillerman's great. He's great. He, he reminds me a lot of who's the guy that's in 1776? Is John Adams? And he was it's, uh, the guy. He was in L.A. Law too, and he's um, oh yeah, I know exactly the guy you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I forget. Oh well, I don't. Th- I think I've only seen 1776 once. What? I know it's one of your favorites. It is. Well, maybe next show, 2020, we'll do it. I'll do it on July 4th. <laughs> okay. That right. seems correct. Put it in the calendar. That seems 1776 correct. 1776 for the 4th of July. <laughs> um, all right. William Daniels. That's the name of the actor. William so, Daniels. Yes. yes, that's the guy. 
Uh, yeah, very Hillerman-ish. Yeah. Hillerman-esque. You know, uh, after you've worked with a man for a certain length of time, you come to know his habits, his values, you come to know him. And either he's the kind who chases after women or he isn't. Always. He never even kids about it. Jake's still trying to find out, like, do you know where he's having lunch? No. And says, well, I'll tell, tell him I'll be back. And he says, can I take one of your cards? And he takes a whole stack of his cards. <laughs> and he's heading out. And then there we run into a big, brooding, thuggy-looking guy yeah. that Jake obviously recognized. His name is uh, Claude Molehill, I think. It's a weird name. <laughs> and the, the joke is great. What are you doing here? Shut my water off. What's it to you? How'd you find out about it? You don't drink it. You don't take a bath in it. They wrote you a letter. But then you'd have to be able to read. <laughs> Obviously, they have a history. Yeah. And it ends up this guy is being hired to protect the reservoirs because with all of this drought and controversy over the dam and water rights, there have been threats on the reservoirs. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, they've had to ration the water in the valley and farmers are desperate, And but the city needs drinking water. So the conflict, this is California politics 101, the conflict between the rights of farmers to water and the cities to have drinking water and expansion of huge cities like LA that need a lot of water, mm -hmm. that is, if you drive up I-5 right now, you will see crops grow where water flows. Right. There is huge pressure on where do we put the limited water a state has, particularly a state that has lots of droughts like California does. Yeah. And there really were water wars. And the Owens Valley, where we got all this water and had the and, and Mulholland built the aqueduct from, they blew up the aqueduct multiple times yeah. to protect their water rights. Right. Because they didn't the people that lived there didn't want all their water being sucked out of the groundwater and sent down to LA. Yeah, this is something I guess this is a moment to bring this up, but um Lindley, my girlfriend, this is her favorite movie. Mm. And, and we, she does not watch a lot of movies, nor does she like a lot of movies, but she loves this movie. And this is the movie that we kind of fell in love at uh, officially when we went to see it uh, over a year ago. Um, but the reason, one of the reasons why she loves it so much is also because where she grew up um, uh, with the tribe, the Mono tribe and mm. uh, up there in Madeira, the water rights thing is massive. Oh, it's huge. It's very, very well known. And there were a couple of people in her tribe, higher up in her tribe, uh, elder leaders, who knew all about this and were very aware of it and kept the tribe in the know about everything that was happening. So water rights were massive to her and her growing up. And so to it's so funny that this is the film that kind of opens it up and highlights it. And I think it's difficult to understand for me personally, I think, because we didn't grow, I didn't grow up here. Right. And I think if I grew up here, I'd be more like you do any Washington politics insider thing. Yeah. I'm all about it. I know all the ins and outs of that stuff. But the water rights stuff, I don't really know that much about. But for her, it's like it resonates with her deeply. And it's why it's one of her favorite films. Well, and I would say, frankly, unless if you grew up in L.A., you could yeah. be fifth generation L.A. and know nothing about this. You know what I mean? Because you just you turn on your tap and the water comes out. Right. But if you grew up in Madeira, where she came from, yeah, this is the economy. This is the livelihood. This is the culture. Exactly. And, and a lot of there's a lot of uh, native peoples, both in Owens Valley and all over the state of California, who've had their lives just messed up in all sorts of ways yeah. by the power of big cities coming along and taking away their resources. Yeah. Most important, water. You know. So this is this is, and, and but the hard thing though is that. 
there are some movies where you can learn some history from sure, the movie. Sure, This really isn't one of them. <laughs> you know, it's like it's sort of like it's yeah. not like the Braveheart thing because this isn't pretending to be a right. true story. Right, right, or is that right. one is? But it is still sort of like, wait, like, the dams and going where yeah. and the years are all wrong and it's it's a very different thing. But the fact that there are literal wars about water in yeah. California, that is certainly true. Yes, she sent me like six articles about this stuff. Did you read them? No, because I, I don't want to know. I, I have no interest in knowing about the water rights stuff. So I will fully admit that I didn't read them and I was a bad boyfriend. So, all right. <laughs> she, anyway, there we go. All right, Lindley. Yeah. You, you do what you have to do. <laughs> That's right. I'll take my punishment <laughs> um, in the water. <laughs> he he. The shots are beautiful. And yeah. driving up this hill to this mansion in his convertible is just, it's gorgeous. Um, walks up to the front door, rings the bell, and there is James Hong. Yeah. <laughs> James Hong pops up in so all in so many weird places, man. He's so great, uh, and he closes the door on him. And and he got, there's just this weird moment where he hears a strange noise, and there's a dude yeah. waxing a car. And I don't know why that's. It's one of those things where it's like I don't know why it's in the movie. Yeah, except that it's cool on some weird level. Uh, and James Hong comes back, lets him inside, tells him to wait. He looks out into the gardener, sees a gardener working, goes out to see the gardener, and the gardener is. You know, doing something with the fish pond, and then he pulls some gunk out of the fish pond, and he says, Bad for glass. Yeah, sure. This is the somewhat racial joke of his accent. He says, bad for glass. Yeah. And Jake says, oh, bad for glass, which is, they're saying bad for grass. Yeah. You know, okay. And then he, he sees the something shiny in the pond. And he starts to kind of give it a little metal thing to yeah. maybe get it out of the pond. And that's when Faye Dunaway shows up. Right. So this is a really important plant. Um, it is something that's going to come back later in the movie. Yep. Uh, and what is important about, A, why this is bad for the grass, and what actually is this sparkly thing in the pond is something we're going to come back to. Mm -hmm. And Jake says to Faye, I came to see your husband. My husband's at the office. Actually, he's not, Mrs. Mulray. <clears throat> And he's checked out of his apartment at the Elma condo. That's not his apartment. Did he rent an apartment in this building? Yes. Was he renting the apartment with that girl? I don't know if he's renting the apartment with the girl. I think he's renting the apartment to be closer to the job. Oh, okay. Times when he like works late oh, like that. All right. Yeah, that happened. That's very ca that, sure. that happened a lot. Yeah. Sure. Back then. Because the who is Mulray and is he a really good guy? Right, right. Or is he not such a good guy? Is something that I don't think we're gonna get. My impression is the movie wants us to believe that he is actually a really good guy. Yeah. But what's going on with Catherine, who's the sister daughter? I don't know. Yeah. Some weird stuff. The point is, is I'm not in business to be loved, but I am in business. And believe me, Mrs. Mulray, whoever set your husband up set me up. L.A. is a small town. People talk. I'm just trying to make a living. I don't want to become a local joke. Mr. Giddens, you've talked me into it. I'll drop the lawsuit. What? I said I'll drop the lawsuit. So let's just drop the whole thing. Why does she want to drop the lawsuit now? I think because he's, he's dogged. He's determined. He might expose something that she's not ready to kind of expose yet. And so she's just like, fine, I'll just get you out. We're done with it. Just go away. She started the lawsuit. That might have been this morning. Right. Or maybe it was she yesterday. Never, I don't think she ever started the lawsuit. But she threatened the lawsuit. This might go like, why did she, she... The guy had papers. Right, right. And then she immediately drops it for no particular reason, except... Mm -hmm. So what, again, I'm spoiling the whole movie, but this yeah. is out like... Because this is the only way I can... I'm trying to get my head around this thing. So last night, Hollis Mulray was murdered yep. in the pond that where... And those are, in fact, his glasses, his glasses the shiny yeah. thing in the pond. Yeah. Does she know her husband's dead? 
It's a good question. I'll answer it later. <laughs> well played, sir. Because, and I think, but so let's put that out there. Yeah, it's she either knows that she or she doesn't know. Right. If she knows, that's a reason why she might drop the lawsuit. If she doesn't know, then I don't know why she's not dropping the law. And right. what she does or doesn't know, and it's another thing we we'll have to get into as we go along. When was the last time she saw her father? Yeah, that's a thing that's going to be very complicated. Mm-hmm. All right, so she says, he says, I don't want to drop it. Uh, and I better check with your husband because he doesn't want to talk to the woman. He wants right. to talk to the man. Of course. Why? What on earth for? Holly seems to think you're an innocent man. <laughs> well, I've been accused of a lot of things before, Mrs. Mulray, but never that. And now we see the reason why Jake's here. Look, somebody's gone to a lot of trouble here in lawsuit or no lawsuit. I intend to find out. I'm not supposed to be the one who's caught with his pants down. So unless it's a problem, I'd like to talk to your husband. Well, should it be a problem? May I speak frankly, Mrs. Mulray? Yeah, if you can, Mr. Giddes. Well, that little girlfriend, she was pretty in a cheap sort of a way, of course. She's disappeared. Maybe they disappeared together. Yeah. <laughs> That's her daughter. Yeah. Who's 16, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty in a cheap sort of way. And so he goes, he wants to find her. She might, you know, she might have information. Right. Um, and he says, look, this is nothing personal. And her response very intensely is... It's right. very personal. It couldn't be more personal. Let's look at it this way. <clears throat> now, this phony broad, excuse the language, she tells me she's you, she hires me. Now, whoever put her up to it doesn't have anything against me, they're out to get your husband. If I can see him, I can help him. So he's seen, like, okay, this person came and set Hollis up, yeah. and I want to figure out the reason. What's behind all this? Asked if she talked to her husband this morning. She says, no, I went riding, mm-hmm. which might be true, yeah. or it might be she already knew that he was dead. Right. Um, so she's putting on appearances. Yeah, exactly. And then there's this weird moment where she says, bareback. <laughs> I don't know any reason why it's important to say bareback at this moment. Well, I think it's it's a it's a noir, right? Yeah. It's a it's a modern well, modern for that time, noir. And uh so you have gotta throw a little bit of the sexual yeah. uh innuendo or flirting in there. Because yeah. the black widow character in the noir is exactly. the classic figure. Exactly. So um she tells him, Oh, my husband usually takes walks at the reservoir and so he goes, Okay, so he heads off. We show up at the reservoir. Again, we're behind his head as he drives up to the location. Uh he gets out. And they say, oh, you can't come in here. And he says, no, I work for the Department of Water and Power. <laughs> Hands him the card, right. drives through the gate, is walking down, and then the detectives recognize him. Mm-hmm. And there is uh, Lou Escobar, lieutenant, who is Perry Lopez, who apparently worked with Jake in Chinatown. Yeah. And they know each other. And we don't know what the history is here. Right. Other than Jake kind of putting himself where he doesn't belong sometimes. Yep. The other cop there is clearly not a fan. Mm-hmm. And I love, by the way, that Escobar is very elegant. Yeah. He's stylish. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's great. I mean, I don't know where this character, but it's great to see a Latino character yeah. in the 1970s, early 1970s. Pavel playing a like character this. in the 30s. Yeah. Playing a character know. in the 30s. Yeah. And also a character of some import. Here's the status. Thing. Here, here's the thing that people might not be, not, it sounds stupid, but mm. that people don't think about. There are Latinos that have been in California and Los Angeles a hell of a lot longer than everybody else. Yes. You know, generation after generation after generation, both people who actually had settled the city of Los Angeles, which is not an English name, right. You know, in the 1800s and people that immigrated here in the twenties in the thirties and the forties and the fifties and have well-established lives and communities and status in this community for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And Escobar is certainly one of them. 
And we're in a really cool handheld shot, by the way. And the reason it's handheld is that if you're on a dolly, this is just technically, dollies are very smooth, but they can only do certain things. So they can go in a straight line. They can curve. They can't make a left turn. They can't go upstairs. They can't go over different levels. And so this shot is going to handheld back, 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 and then step up onto this ramp over the the canal or whatever it is yeah. that goes down. And that's and it's a, it's a really, really nice shot. And as we walk down this thing and we're talking about... Hollis Mulray, you seen him? Yeah. I'd like to talk to him. I'd like to talk to him. You're welcome to try. There he is. Then we cut to, with a big music sting, a dead Hollis Mulray being hauled up through the water. Yep. It's a great, great moment. And at that great moment, I think it's a good time to hear a little bit from our sponsors. All right. Welcome back to Chinatown. Um, (laughs) We have gone to the morgue. Yes. Welcome to the morgue. Mrs. Mulray, do you happen to know the name of the young lady in question? No. Or where she might be? Certainly not. You and your husband never discussed her. And this is where it gets weird. She says... We, we did. He, 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 he wouldn't tell me her name. We quarreled over her, of course. It came as a complete surprise to me. Really, it was a surprise. So why did you hire a detective right. to investigate her if it came as a complete surprise? And she goes, what detective? Mm-hmm. And there, it's like, well, he's right there. Yeah. He's standing right there. And she goes, oh, 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 yeah, I hired him because I knew it wasn't true to put an end to the rumors. <laughs> okay. Good thinking on the fly. Yeah. Will you need me for anything else, Lieutenant? Oh, no, no, Mrs. Uh, Mulray. I don't think so. If we need any more information, we'll be in touch. And Jake says, let me take her outside. They go outside. Reporter's there. Yeah. He kind of protects her, but he has no problem getting the picture taken by the reporters. He even spells his name out. Right. Again, there's that vanity. Good publicity, too. Absolutely. That money. Um, And we're at her car, and she says, well, I'll send you a check. He's like, what for? He's like, well, it has to be official that I've hired you, so I'm going to send you a check. And she heads off. Uh, He goes back into the morgue and starts talking to the coroner, who's a great, got to have the great coroner character. That's a classic trope. Middle of a drought, and the water commissioner drowns. (laughs) Only in L.A. We walk by a naked corpse and we see another dead body. And this is a local drunk who had built like a whole house inside one of these storm drains. Yeah. He drowned too. Well, how could he drown? There's no water. He's like, well, he did. He drowned in this uh, riverbed underneath this bridge. It's like, yeah, but there's no water there. It's like, well, he had water in his lungs. And so what does Jake do? Heads off to the bridge. Yep. There is some water there. Looks around again. The score is killing it. Yeah, Jerry Goldsmith's score, and and I can totally hear a little bit of the Planet of the Apes. Ah, uh, yes. I I'll tell you. You know what I think is? I don't think this is my favorite Jerry Goldsmith mm. score. I think this might be my second. Wow. Or third. My favorite is a movie that we are definitely doing next year. Mm-hmm. It's Patton. Oh yeah. Patton has an unbelievable score. Yeah, yeah. If we can get Rachel back for that one, that's one of our favorite. Films. Oh, Rachel Cushing. We yeah. t- we've been tr- we we. T- I know. We've yeah, been trying. We, yeah. 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 Sometimes scheduling's hard. Rachel's super busy, apparently. Well, and so are we. And it's so not, are we. That's, it's not her fault. That's a fair point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and guess what? Who else is there? Kid on a swayback horse. Yep. And he asks him some questions and says, hey, you talked to that guy you know, who wore glasses? Yeah. What did you talk about? Do you mind my asking? The water. What about the water? When it comes. When it comes? What did you tell him? It comes in different parts of the river. Every night a different part. And the kid rides away. Yep. 
So we had Jake at the beach when the water came out. And now we have this kid saying, no, this is happening kind of all over Mm -hmm. the river. Uh, He's driving later at night. Again, the shot is behind him. He gets out of the car. We're back at that same reservoir. There's no trespassing sign. Climbs over uh, into the area, looks around, climbs the fence, and he's down sort of in the trough where the water is. And then he hears what sounds like a gunshot. But I think what it is is like the sluice opening or something. Mm -hmm. Because all of a sudden, water just comes slamming down, catches him, shoots him down the hill into the... uh, a chain link fence, which he manages to climb up and out. Yeah. And that is really Jack. Yeah. Wow. Oh, really? Doing That's this? Jack. Wow. And it looks genuinely scary. Oh, yeah. And I bet it hit him a lot harder than he expected because <laughs> that's a lot of water. To, and climbing up a fence in a 1930s era suit yeah. with 1930s era shoes when you're soaking wet, getting pummeled by a lot of water. Yeah. That's hard. Yep. You know what Jack said? What? One take. <laughs> I will course. do it once. Of course. Um, and he lost his goddamn Florsheim shoe. <laughs> I remember Florsheim shoes. Oh, yeah. And up walks a thug in a white suit who calls him Kitty Cat. You're a very nosy fella, Kitty Cat, huh? <laughs> and that is Roman Polanski. Yes, it is. He's flanked by two of the... Yeah, by two bigger guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, again, <laughs> I'm... There's a lot of things to say about Roman Polanski. Yeah. He is great yeah, in this is. scene. Yep. It is weird and creepy and peculiar, mm-hmm. and his rhythms are odd, and his accent is great. By the way, he didn't want to play this part, and everyone else said, no, you have to play it. Yeah. And one of the big reasons he didn't want to play the part, he didn't want to cut his beautiful, long 70s hair. <laughs> he literally got his hair cut right before shooting this scene, because <laughs> he really didn't want to do it. And he was also really, really nervous about doing it. Yeah. And he came to Jack and said, I don't know that I can do this. I can't act like this in front of a big Hollywood movie. And Jack says, I'll tell you what. I can't do a Jack impression. But he says, I'll tell you what to do. You're nervous. You need to do the thing that is even scarier. So he said, when you go out onto the set, take your pants off in the dressing room and go out with no pants and pretend you were so nervous you forgot your pants. And then... It'll be so embarrassing, that situation, that you won't be nervous to do the scene anymore. And that is what Polanski did. He went out with no pants. I hope he had underwear on. <laughs> it was not in the story. It's the 70s. Who knows? It uh, could be 50-50. Well, it just got weird with Roman Polanski. It so. did. It did. You know what happens to nosy fellows? Huh? No? Want to guess? And he takes that knife, oh. sticks it up into the left nostril. Yeah. Apparently, Nicholson is very proud of his teardrop-shaped nostrils. <laughs> this is something Robert Town said. That's how this torture got figured out. <laughs> Sticks that knife in the nostril, and, and uh, Polanski says they lose their noses. They lose their noses. And he goes, flick, yeah, man. and cuts through the side of Nicholson's nostril, and blood shoots out. And it is brutal. It is brutal. It's a brutal film moment. Uh- this and the Marathon Man moment. Oh, are the, oh, and the ankling. Oh, yeah. Those are the, misery. Yeah, and misery. Those are the three like most memorable to me sure. uh, moments like that. Um, and <laughs> it's, it's a real simple trick. It's a knife that is on a flange, so mm-hmm. it can kind of move just a little bit. Yeah. And there's a little button for him to squirt blood in the knife, built into the knife. And he goes flick and squirts the blood, and that's all it is. It's all wow. practical effect. The only thing is, is that the the knife only would bend one way. So if he had the knife backwards, it could really cut Nicholson's <laughs> Shit, ear. Yeah. So before every take, he went. Nicholson went check the knife. Is it in the right way? Okay, check the knife. 
Uh, and he goes down, and they tell him... Next time you lose the whole thing. Cut it off and feed it to my goldfish. Now, Robert Town was obviously working some things out against Jack in this movie. Cause, <laughs> right? Because, I mean, to, to go after him in certain ways, and then to mess with his vanity by having him walk around the next few... A long, it's a long time. Oh, yeah, for a long time in the, in the rest of the part of the movie uh, with a bandage on his nose to kind of like take away a little bit of his vanity I thought was brilliant. It's, brilliant. it's, it's so funny. I have such mixed feelings about Robert Town. Yeah? You know, because he's he is uh, disgusted as just the great screenwriter yes. of all time. Yeah. And this, this screenplay in particular is held up as one of the great screenplays of all yep. time. And it's a great screenplay, and he's a great screenwriter. But I don't, I mean, I don't know if I go, if I, if, I like him that much. He seems very arrogant. He's a certain type. Oh, you mean as a person? Well, and also it's like, okay, what are all his great screenplays other than Chinatown? Good question. And I, I'm sure there's, you could go look it up. Let's see. He seems like a person who's like, almost like his mystique is greater than the sum of his works. I also think his name helps. He has such a good name. It is a good name. Right, Robert Town. Yeah. And there was a documentary about him as well, I believe. Oh, I'd be interested. Uh, yes. <laughs> Let's take a look at the things he's written. Tequila Sunrise. Sure, Tequila Sunrise. He wrote on the Lloyd Bridges show. That's how okay. long ago he's been writing. Wrote two episodes of Outer Limits. Episode of... Mon- he wrote... Uh, he uncredited writer for Bonnie and Clyde. Okay. Uh, That's really a big deal. Bunch of movies that I don't even know. Then The Last Detail, which is Nicholson's kind of breakout. I saw it a role. long time ago. I have no memory of it. That's him and uh, Randy Quaid. That's how long oh, ago Randy oh. Quaid is. Uncredited screenwriter for Parallax View, the Warren Beatty sure. one that I uh, mistakenly watched <laughs> for an hour. Thank you, Steve Jones, you son of a bitch. Uh, he wrote Shampoo. Right. He uh, Uncredited writer for The Missouri Breaks, which is Nicholson's thing with Brando. Uncredited writer for Orca. Ooh. Uncredited writer for Heaven Can Wait, which is one of my kind of closet favorites from the I l- late yeah, 70s. I, 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 I love that. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I watched it over and over again in the, in the 80s. Right, in the 80s. Yeah. yeah, Warren Beatty was so good. Then uh, wrote Personal Best, the Mariel Hemingway movie. Oh. Right? Isn't it Mariel or is it Margot? Yeah, Mariel, where she plays a uh, track athlete who is a oh, lesbian. Oh, right. Uh, then The Terrible Deal of the Century with Chevy Chase and Gregory he Hines. He wrote that? Uncredited. Uh, well, this is what I've heard. Is he kind of a script doctor? Yeah. That came around a lot? Then he changes his name for Greystoke, Legend of Tarzan, to oh, P.H. Really? Vazak, whatever that means. Uh, then and Probably because he didn't want to be known right. as someone who wrote that. Then uncredited screenwriter for 8 Million Ways to Die. Uncredited for Tough Guys Don't Dance. Uncredited for Frantic, which is also another Paul well, Harrison film Ford, yeah. With Harrison Ford. Tequila Sunrise. Days of Thunder. Uh, he And The, the Firm. Love hmm. Affair, which is the one with Beatty and uh, Benning. Hmm. Mission Impossible, the first one with Tom Cruise. The first one, Yes. Without Limits, which is the Prefontaine movie. Oh, yeah. Then wrote the terrible Mission Impossible 2. Uh, Ask the Dust, which I think is a Colin Farrell movie. And then uh, wrote the screenplay for a thing called Welcome to the Basement. Two episodes of that. So that's it. That's his writing resume. So I... I- I kind of stand by my point. Yeah, I can. I think you can make a case. It's like he's he's still alive and still writing. Yeah, he's apparently doing an adaptation of Thirty Nine Steps. Really? Oof. I mean, uh, touch that. I'm not saying the guy's a bad writer. No, no, not at all. But it's like not. okay, other than Chinatown, which was the great film? Yeah, you know. Yeah, 
Well, he also directed Tequila Sunrise. He did. Uh, well, the uncredited Bonnie and Clyde thing, you can give him credit for Absolutely. that. Absolutely. For, yeah. for whatever, but we don't know what he wrote. Right. You know, there could have been six writers. In fact, I know because I know the script is by the two guys who were the magazine writers. Yes. Whose name I don't remember. Yeah. Uh, oh, anyway, article, yeah. We've digressed. Yes, we have, but um, in the right direction. Yeah. Because after this brutal scene <laughs> where he gets his nose cut open, we cut to a shot again behind Jack's head. And actually, this is a visual joke. He's back in his office. He's talking to his guys. And yeah. then there is the cut to him with that big bandage on his nose. So great. That's great. And you're right. Having the movie star have his face obscured by a bandage for probably half the film. That's a bold choice. Yeah. That that doesn't happen. And credit to Jack for being cool with it. Only in the 70s would you get away with that. I don't yeah. think any other decade you can get away with that. Yeah. Think you can nail Mulvihill? They'll claim you were trespassing. Don't want Mulvihill. I want the big boys that are making the payoffs. And while this conversation is going on, someone is calling in a woman who wants to talk to Jake, right. who says he knows her, name's Ida Sessions. Don't know her, take a number. She insists, he gets on the phone with her. I was the one who pretended to be Mrs. Mulright. Remember? Shut the fuck up. He suddenly is paying a lot of attention. Yeah. And... I had a sessions. He asked, who is it? Who's your employer? She won't tell him. He asked, can we meet? No. And she says, just look at the obituary column. You'll find one of those people. Mm. And she hangs up. And he looks at the obituary column, but we don't really see much. And, it, he, I, and, and what we find out later is he doesn't understand what's on the obituary column yeah. for a while. He's at a restaurant and Faye enters. So here's a little behind the scenes story. There was a lot of upsets on this film oh yeah here's one of them so uh faye is doing this scene and and polanski is very particular he's particular about things visually it obviously shows this is a beautifully made movie and there was something there was like a hair that was out of place on faye dunaway and so he says to the uh, hairdresser like can you fix this hair they go back to the trailer they come back out a half hour later she turns her head. The hair drops back in front of her face. He says to the hairdresser, can you please fix this hair? We can't shoot this unless you fix it. They go back to the trailer. Again, this is a half hour, long time. Right. And time wasted on a movie set, that's money. So she comes back out. The hair drops out of place again. Polanski walks up to her, pulls out the hair oh. out of her head. Faye Dunaway loses it. Of course. Screaming, yelling, upset. Literally, they wrapped photography for the day. Yeah. They shot nothing. He's lucky she didn't pound him into dust. (laughs) Faye at this time is peak Faye. It's peak Faye. Yeah, you don't fuck with peak Faye. Particularly her hair. Yes. But they get past that and they do shoot the scene. (laughs) They sit down in the booth and he says, you know, he got his check in the mail. It's it's very generous. And he said, then he says, it's not enough. And she's like, well, how much do you want? He's like, I don't want the money is fine. Yeah. But I think you shortchanged me on the story. Yeah. Something else besides the death of your husband was bothering you. You were upset, but not that upset. Mr. Gillies, don't tell me how I feel. Look, you sue me, your husband dies, you drop the lawsuit like a hot potato, all of it quicker than the wind from a duck's ass. Excuse me. Then you ask me to lie to the police. It wasn't much of a lie. If your husband was killed, it was. This could look like you paid me off to withhold evidence. And she says, well, but he wasn't killed. Which she might know that he was. Right. If she can lie to the cops, why wouldn't she lie to him? Exactly. Well, and she is. I mean, she's. Yeah. I mean, she, we, we certainly know of many of the lies. Yes. We just don't know all the lies. Because the reality, we're never going to get the bo- bottom mm-hmm. of this story. Right. Uh, and she says, oh, actually, I did lie about one thing, which is that she knew about the affair. And you weren't the least bit upset. 
I was grateful. That's a great line. Mm-hmm. Okay, I just dissed Robert Town a little bit, but this is a great script. I'm not saying it's not. It's a fantastic script, and right. that is a great moment. Look, I do matrimonial work. It's my métier. When a wife tells me that she's happy that her husband is cheating on her, it runs contrary to my experience. Unless what? She was cheating on him. Which is, of course, the truth. Yeah. She says, I dislike the word cheat. He asks, if you had affairs... And then asks if Mulray knew about it. Well, I wouldn't run home and tell him every time I went to bed with someone, if that's what you mean. And then he asks, and this is the crux of the whole thing. Where were you when your husband died? I can't tell you. You mean you don't know where you were? I mean, I can't tell you. You were seeing someone, too. For very long? I don't see anyone for very long, Mr. Giddies. Okay. Let's contemplate this for a moment. Sure. Husband died a couple of nights ago. Yes. Uh, we know that he was killed at her house. Mm-hmm. We know that he was drowned in the saltwater pond. Well, we know in retrospect. Right. At the end of the- We p- don't know right now. No, 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 no. Right. I'm saying what- I'm trying to reconstruct- Yeah, 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 yeah. As much as a detective, <laughs> I'm trying to reconstruct what actually happened. We also know that the person that killed her husband is her father, yep. Noah Cross, because that's his glasses that are actually in the water. Right. She says that she was with someone. Is the someone that she was with her father? I think so. So therefore, she was there when he was killed, and she does know that he was killed. Unless he went and did it after they had whatever, hung out or whatever. Because he could have gotten to, in the meeting with her or met up with her just to, to kind of assure her that he was going to protect her. and protect Dad. They, yeah, the dad. Before or after he killed Hollis? Um, I don't know. Maybe before. See, to me, if she went and had, if dad came over. Yeah. And she had sex with her father. I mean, right. It's all fucked up yes. stuff. And Hollis came home right. after his regular nightly outings to the various reservoirs. Yeah. And found, walked in on them or yeah. found dad there. That's certainly possible. That's certainly a motivation for violence yeah. and Hollis's death. Yeah. That's possible. Sure. The other question, she says, I don't sleep with anyone for very long. So is she a person? She's also could be that she's telling the truth there. And then, in fact, she's had various other lovers, but can't really connect with them on an intimate level because of the abuse she suffered at the hands of her father. Right. So it could have been that she's just with some random person. Yeah. And the the Hollis thing seems like an arranged marriage by Noah to keep tabs on Hollis. Again, but it's after they had a falling out. So why would she again? This is again. I'm going into the future. Yeah, yeah. The power of the that relationship though is like overwhelming. You know, she always goes back to him. We find out, uh, you know, later on in the film, how this relationship is something that she's never been able to fully sever. Nor has she taken the strongest. Like when she starts to take the strongest steps towards it, she enlists Jake's help. But in enlisting Jake's help. At the critical moment, she can't quite 100% go forward with it, and that's what ends up like well, and, causing what happens. And to some degree, she's used Hollis. She could have gone to the papers at any moment with this story. Any moment. With the story about Hollis. Her and her dad. Her and her dad. Oh, right. yeah. Well, at any moment. Well, there are big reasons why a human might not want that story out there. Sure, but, there mean, are, there, but if, she was, if she wanted her dad to pay, if she wanted to really sever the relationship, if she could. And it's not, I'm not saying, how can I say this correctly? I think when you take advantage of a young person and you construct a relationship like this, it makes it very, very difficult for them to untangle themselves from you fully oh, yeah. so that you can be punished for the terrible things you've done. And that's what I mean. I mean, she 
hasn't taken the strong steps to fully separate this because there's so much tangled up in this relationship with her father. And it could be that she's sleeping with her father to keep him from sleeping with her daughter. Or well, this is the... So, and her, his, his own daughter as well. So this is... So first of all, uh, just to respond to something you said, yeah, yeah, yeah. there is no way to talk about this correctly. Right. You know what I mean? Like, of course, no speculation. We are, we are, well, I don't just mean that. I mean, we are talking about some of the most fucked up shit yes. in any movie we've ever talked about, and it is horrible, and there isn't, there's no way to delicately explore what the hell this is. It is upsetting, and it is awful, and that is what it is, yeah. but in trying to understand what's going on with these characters... I don't see any other way other than going into it and discussing yeah. it. The other thing, and maybe I should say this now, the meaning of the final line of the film, the meaning of the title, Chinatown, yeah. is not about Chinatown. Right. It is that there are things that you can never actually understand, control, or help. And that anything that you do to try to get into a thing, you the odds are you're just going to make it worse. Well, and I think that's... Actually, I would push back a little bit and say it does have to do with Chinatown because of the two co- of the cops who said, "Oh, oh, yeah, it's inspired yeah, by that." That Absolutely. it's way too difficult to understand what's going on right here, so we do as little as possible. What, what what I mean is that it's it, it's that idea it totally comes from Chinatown, but it's really it's like uh, to me I, in the, a weird way as I've thought a lot about this movie, and I will say by the way, the movie the more I've thought about it, the movie's gotten better. Oh, and, sure. and become more and more interesting, which I didn't love it as much. But it, the the phrase it's Chinatown now makes me think of the phrase a catch twenty two, which comes out of course the great Joseph Heller book. Right. Which is this it's this idea of, you know, you have to be crazy to get out of the army. Anyone who wants to get out of the army is obviously not crazy. Therefore, they can't get out of the army. That right. is a catch-22. Right. It's like this. And to me, like, it's Chinatown means that it's so messy and so complicated yeah. that there is no way to get into it without causing damage. There's no clean way yeah. to win. Much like the water wars, there is no answer. Right, And much like us trying to delve into who is Evelyn Mulray, what is her relationship with her father, what is his relationship to to her, what is Hollis's relationship to her and the daughter, and what – we're never going to know. It's Chinatown. You know, it's just – and what we're going to see with Jake is the more he tries to dig in and solve the mystery, the worse he's going to make it. Yeah, Because in the end, everything I think would be better. If he hadn't gotten involved. If he hadn't gotten involved. Right. Um, but right now, he's going to get even further involved because he realizes her middle initial is C and asks what it's for. And it is for the word cross because that is her father's name. Yeah. You must have had a reason to ask me that. No, I'm just a snoop. Outside, we're getting our cars. And he says, you should come with me. And she says, no. Okay, go home. But in case you're interested, your husband was murdered. Somebody's been dumping thousands of tons of water from the city's reservoirs, and we're supposed to be in the middle of a drought. He found out about it, and he was killed. There's a waterlogged drunk in the morgue, involuntary manslaughter if anybody wants to take the trouble, which they don't. It seems like half the city is trying to cover it all up, which is fine by me. But Mrs. Mulray, I goddamn near lost my nose, and I like it. I like breathing through it. And I still think that you're hiding something. Mrs. Mulray, I goddamn almost lost my nose, and I like breathing through it. Nicholson is just—he's great. He is when he when he is on. He is mm-hmm. he is just one of those unique, fascinating people that you just can't stop watching. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, 
And I love, too, that he gets in his car and speeds away. And just as he hits the gas and we hear the screech of his tires, she calls after him. Yeah. And wants him to stop. Mm-hmm. She Again, she wants his help because she's trapped. We, we that's don't know, the thing. You know, I think that's why it's difficult to figure out her motivations, Steve, because she's trapped. Yeah. She's, she, she, she knows she wants to get out of it. She just doesn't know how. Yeah. And here comes, for the first time ever probably in her life, other than Hollis, who was never going to get her out of this, but he was certainly going to be a good sounding board for her. Here comes a guy like Jake who could actually make proactive decisions to untangle this very, very tight knot. Right. We are back at the water offices. Mm. Jake now asked to see the assistant, the John Hillerman character, and the secretary's like, no, he's busy. He's like, okay, I'll wait. She's like, well, he's going to be busy for a long time. I can wait a long time. Yeah. And I love like the humming, the whistling, the tapping. And then he starts looking around and he looks at pictures. And there is a picture of John Houston with Mulray. Yeah. And his, we see the name under it is Noah Cross. And he starts looking around. There are a lot of pictures of Noah Cross here. Noah Cross worked for the water department. Yes. No. Well, did he or didn't he? He owned it. I love this writing, by the way. Again, good job, Robert Town. <laughs> he owned the water department? Yes. You mean he owned the entire water supply for the city? Yes. How'd they get it away from him? Mr. Mulray felt the public should own the water. Mr. Mulray? I thought you said Cross owned it. Along with Mr. Mulray. They were partners? So here's what we talked about on the cinephiles before. The hardest thing as a screenwriter is exposition. Just yeah. getting out the information. This is a great exposition yep. scene. Because it's very clever the way it all comes out. And it makes sense. It makes sense. And so if Mulray is somewhat William Mulholland, William Mulholland had a partner named Fred Eaton. Fred Eaton, who had been the mayor of Los Angeles, mm. was a major land speculator. And this guy made a ton of money out of water shenanigans. Because what, and we'll get to kind of what this is. I won't go into it in detail now, but but this Fred Eaton guy, he might be a little bit more the model for Noah Cross. Ah, uh, that makes sense. And then he hears some scraping and I love, they open up the door and there's the painters taking Mulray's name off the door to put whatever Hillerman's character's names, and then Hillerman will see him. So he yeah. goes in. My goodness, what happened to your nose? Cut myself shaving. Huh. We've got to be more careful. That must really smart. Only when I breathe. <laughs> There's a laugh. He says, you're still working for Mrs. Mulray? I never was. I don't understand. Neither do I, actually. You hired me. Or you hired that chippy to hire me. So now he's determined that Hillerman oh, yeah. Yeah, has the one that hired yeah. Ida Sessions. He's shaking the trees. Yeah. And he goes, you know, what are you talking about? And he says, let's look at it this way. Mulray didn't want to build a dam, had a reputation that was hard to get around, so you decided to ruin it. Okay. I guess that makes sense. It does, because he wanted to ruin him his reputation so he could take his job. But when he found, but when Noah found out what... Uh, Hollis was doing and I mean sorry when Hollis found out what Noah was doing and what obviously this Hillerman guy was a part of I think he was ready to expose it and he might have even told Evelyn and Evelyn might have let it slip to her dad okay so hold back sure. so 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 sure. so what I think the implication is is 
that Noah Cross hired the Hill- John Hillerman character, who's Y'all Brand or something. Anyway, it's not actually John Hillerman. He's an actor. Right. Um, but they hired that character to uh, hire the chippy eyed assassins to hire Giddies to expose the affair. Right. Now, we don't actually know that he was having an affair. Right. Um, and But they knew he was hanging out with this young girl. Right. But that young girl is Noah Cross's daughter slash granddaughter. Exactly. Who Noah Cross desperately wants back in his life for reasons of protection. Sure. I mean, well, okay, let's just put the most horrible motivations, whatever. Yeah. But does he want her exposed on the front page of the paper as having an affair with Hollis Mulray? He used Evelyn. Why wouldn't he use her? And then also so in this way? Confused. Yes. What? He's, if he's sleeping with his daughter, do- raping his daughter, what does it matter to him that the product of the of the raping, he he like he doesn't see people as human beings. He's one of these sociopaths. Is that what it is? Yes. Yeah. Who does not see these people as human beings. And because he's been living so high on the hog as a rich, powerful man, there is no need for him to see them as human beings but in he, his mind. But he doesn't want publicity. He doesn't want publicity to no. know. But if it helps her, and if it helps him to get publicity that he, Hollis is supposedly having an affair, it's a way to yank Hollis back into the cage, and it's also a way to kind of use this girl if he wants, to, or use his daughter, uh, not Evelyn, but the daughter, the product of the, of the incestuous relationship, Catherine. If he wants to use Catherine in this way, he'll do so. It's, it doesn't quite ring true to me. It's because you're a decent human being, and you wouldn't do it. Noah would. Well, I'll take your uh, your expression of my ignorance in this area as a compliment. I don't man. feel that you're ignorant. I feel that you you just feel like you no, no, morally I, you wouldn't do it. It's not it's not so much that. It's more that it doesn't it doesn't jibe perfectly with what I see as Houston's behavior. How in do the you film. know that he doesn't want her exposed or like what what makes you feel that way? Well, because that he wants to find her. Right. Like he has a strong motivation to find her, and when he sees Evelyn at the end, mm-hmm. he says introduces him as her grandfather right, right, right. but then he says like i i don't have much time you have to let me spend time with her like there i think there is he's a scumbag let me yes, preface yes, this yes, of yes, course yes, yes he is a horrible evil awful person sure but i think he has affection also you know that one can be a horrible evil person and through their cognitive dissonance have like put of course yeah hitler so, had a girlfriend so, yeah. yeah so so like i think so him and again it goes to Part of it is that I think the movie is servicing the needs of the movie. Right. You know what I mean? Not necessarily because, and they don't want this all to make sense, I and I say, don't think it does. Let, let me throw it out there. Do you think Noah Cross couldn't find somebody if he didn't want to find somebody? With well, the amount of power that's another, that's and another the tentacles question. he has. Well, and why, why, if he wants to find her, why hire Gettys to expose her as an affair? That, that's where the motivations... Oh, no, he was going after Hollis, not her. Right, but if he knew that she's the person that... Like you, if you're going to hire someone, maybe he to take... didn't know that she was the person. Oh, he just thinks there is a person, but right. it's a surprise that that person is. I think that's possible. Maybe that's possible. I think so. At that point, then it's like he goes for a different thing. Because <laughs> this, is... this is, by the way, turning into the most ridiculous. Setup. I love it though. It's good. <laughs> it's like watching our own uh, reality show. Of some kind. It's just so. So, needless to say, uh, the John Hillerman character is not pleased about this, but he does yeah. admit because. Obviously, Jake knows about the water that's being dumped, thousands of gallons of water in the middle of a drought. And he says, well, we don't want it to get around, but we've been delivering some water to some farmers in the North Valley. 
and there's going to be a little runoff. It's like a political thing. Yeah. Now I don't Curry know. favor and I votes. can't even figure out exactly what's where this water is going yeah, and no. why there's runoff that's going way out to the ocean. Right. You know, from when it's being delivered to these farms, if that's even true. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I can't even begin to figure out what's going on there. <laughs> um, and 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 he's kind of going. Well, where is this? And he says, Well, it's up in the North Valley. He says you could be saying Arizona. That is such a huge area. Yeah. True. I don't want to nail you. I want to find out who put you up to it. I'll give you a few days to think about it. Call me, I can help. Who knows? Maybe we can put the whole thing off on a few big shots and uh, you can stay the head of the department for the next 20 years. And that's the end of that scene. He ends up back at his office. Faye Dunaway is there. There's a gorgeous shot of her standing in front of the Venetian blinds. Yeah. By the way, the costumes are beautiful. Every The set design is beautiful. I don't have all the names of everyone who did this, but it's really great. And I have another story okay. of fights on the set. Sure. So apparently, Polanski, again, very particular about each Venetian blind and was going by hand and adjusting the angle of them to get them just right, going back to camera, looking at it, going back, adjusting them again, adjusting the lights. He wanted the shadows and the light coming through exactly perfectly. And Nicholson is on the set going, we're not going to make our day. Yeah. You know, like we're never going to get this shot. We're never going to make it. And, you know. There's also happened to be a Laker game that night. <laughs> and Nicholson wanted to get the hell out. Yeah. And he says, look, I would never tank a shoot for a Laker game. Um, that's what he says. That's what he says. <laughs> I don't know whether that's true. But the reality is he's starting to go like, look, if we're not going to make this day anyway, why can't I just go see my Laker game? And finally, I do like one take. And then finally, Polanski says, okay, that's a wrap. And Nicholson goes, that's a wrap. And he swings his hand up and swings his hand down and hits all the Venetian blinds. Oh. And, he, and Polanski goes crazy. Yeah. Follows him into his trailer, grabs a big metal, I don't know if it was a pipe or something, and hits Nicholson's TV. Wow. Couldn't break the TV. Picks up the TV, throws it out the window of the trailer. It ends up, it wasn't Nicholson's TV, it was the AD's TV. Oh, shit. So then he and Nicholson are screaming at each other, yelling at each other. Right. Nicholson storms off the set and then realizes that he had to change wardrobe. So he has to storm back on the set, <laughs> gets out of his costume, gets in his car. Uh, Polanski storms off the set. He gets in his car. They pull. They both pull out of the studio, then end up like at a red light next to each other and look over at each other who, you know, because they're stuck in traffic now stay, sitting next to her right. and they burst into laughter. <laughs> they think it's the funniest thing in the world. And then they both realize that the whole crew and probably Bob Evans and Faye Dunaway and everyone else are completely freaked out yeah. because who knows if they were going to have a movie because the last thing they saw was the director throwing what he thought was the actor's TV out a window <laughs> and they think that is hilarious and it's a Friday and they tell no one that they've made up for the whole weekend. Oh my God. Just to let them be stressed out. Jesus. <laughs> yeah yep <laughs> tell me something uh, did you get married before or after Mulrain your father sold the water department Noah Cross is your father isn't he <laughs> yes of course and she opens up her cigarette case to light a cigarette she already got a cigarette lighting well it was just sometime after I was just out of grade school when they did that. So Mulray is quite a bit older than the woman that he marries. Exactly. We don't know if he's quite as old as, as Noah Cross. He's probably younger than that, but he's a lot older. Yes. He, then he says, does talking about your father upset you? 
because she's lit a second cigarette. And she says, Yes, a little. See, Hollis and my... Struggles with the word. My father had a, a falling out, finally. Over you or over the water department? Not over me. Why should it be over me? Was it over her? I don't know. I mean, we know that when she was 16 years old, she was pregnant with Catherine. Yeah. And that she fled to Mexico to have her baby and that Hollis found her in Mexico and brought her back. Right. And we know that the water uh, thing happened in the when she was in grade school. So long before that. So it seems far more likely that the falling out was over her and the daughter. Maybe. But I don't know. Right. Her, uh, her saying, why would they do it over me is, yeah. you know, not wanting to say the reason maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, there certainly seem to be good reasons why they might've done it over her. It, and what we get it, and this is by the way, true of Mulholland, that Hollis felt the water should belong to the people and the dad didn't think it that way. And then the dam broke. We don't quite know how, how long ago that was. And Hollis never forgot Noah Cross for the dam. Um, and then she says, they never spoke from that time on. And we, of course, know they did talk again yeah, yeah. about something like Apple Corps. Jake doesn't bring it up. They signed their contracts. And now we're heading off to Catalina Island. Hmm. This is like a great tour of fascinating areas in Los <laughs> Angeles. Um, and he gets on the Catalina Island, gets into like a woody station wagon and heads off. And the music is threatening and powerful. And we see some guys and horses. And there we see John Houston, Noah Cross. Mr. Gibbs. What do you think of the way he's dressed? Did you notice it? It's out of place. It's like he's dressed in like an old-fashioned Mexican yeah. farm, like the elegant man at the Mexican estate. Yeah, yeah. That's it's such an interesting choice to me. It's the plantation owner, almost. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like he's dressed out, dressed out of Zorro or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's really weird. Um, uh, John Huston is so great yeah. in this movie. He's so odd and so compelling. Um, and what's so interesting is that everybody in the interviews I saw, they all do John Houston impressions. Of course. It's like Lauren Michaels. You know that everyone who talks about Lauren Michaels has to do his voice. So I have to tell you about my John Houston impression. Okay. So when we did the assistance, uh, uh, I went and, you you know, trying to can meet actors and convince them to do your movie. And we had signed, Stacey Keach had agreed to do the assistance. So I go out and meet him. I'm very nervous, naturally. And I go in, and first of all, the best thing in the world is he pulls out his script, and it is dog-eared, and with post-its everywhere, and notes in all the margins. And like as a writer, that is the greatest feeling you to have this amazing actor, you know, has actually poured over the script to to, to study it. That felt great. And then I, you know, we're just chatting about stuff, and yeah. he's worked with Orson Welles, and he'd worked with John right. Huston, and so I asked him, you know, what was it like to work with John Huston? And he said. John Houston only gave really two directions. And the directions were, and he did his John Houston impression. He did a little more, a little less. And I said, oh, that's great. And there was one time on the set uh, where he just had to record the audio for a phone call. And the line was, uh, this is this is Harlan fucking Keys, which is character name in the movie. So we're just recording. It's, it's wild line. So we're not rolling the camera, just recording audio. And he does the line. And I walk up to him. I go, a little more. <laughs> and he went, okay. And he did it a little more. And I come up to him and go, a little more. <laughs> and he said, really? And I said, yeah. And then he just destroyed it. It yeah. was perfect. It was exactly what I wanted. Gary Green's office. Give me Gary Green. Uh, can I ask who's calling? This is Harlan fucking Keys. 
And it was so great to be able to do to do the John Houston impression for him. It was just a great moment. Yeah. Because that voice and the way his mouth moves oh, yeah. and his look is just so... It's John Houston. Yeah. He's a legend. Watching him work here is just a master at work. Well, and it's so Playing effortless. Jake. Yeah. It's so... There's not... There's no acting. There's yeah, just yeah, yeah. like, I'm totally in control and just sitting here having this meal yeah. with this whole fish with the yeah. head on. Yeah. And by the way, this almost the whole first half of the scene, it's all one shot. Mm, and they're really right, right, right. eating, which normally in a movie, you don't really eat because you can't eat the same thing right. you know, all day. And you don't want to swim. You start to feel sick. They're really eating in this scene. And that really is a big fish with the head on it. <laughs> so I'm sure it's delicious. And first, he talks about, you know, Mr. Gitz. Uh, Gitz. And apparently, John Houston did just mispronounce the name. And oh, they decided it wasn't on to make purpose? that a thing. It wasn't on purpose. No. Oh. He just didn't know how to say the name. And they said, no, that's good. But I'm surprised you're still working for her. Unless uh, she's suddenly come up with another husband. No. She happens to think the last one was murdered. Um, how'd she get that idea? I think I gave it to her. And Houston asks, what do the police say? He says, accident. They start asking about the investigating officer. And you talk about uh, Lieutenant Escobar and that he's a good man and he knew him in Chinatown. Honest? As far as it goes. Of course, he has to swim in the same water we all do. Which I really love. It's like he is honest up to a certain point. Right. You know? Of course, but you've no reason to think he's bungled the case. None. Not too bad. Now, is he just doing this because he killed Hollis and he wants to find out about the detective investigating the case? Oh, no, I think he just he's just fucking with Jake. I, to me, I think he can do both at the same time. He's playing with him. Look, the thing you said that was an accident is brilliant for his character. Totally. Why would he why would he need to know how to pronounce this dude's name? He doesn't ha- he's nobody to him. Right. Mr. Guts. Yeah. Mr. Guts. And so it's it's just a it's a great way of denig- it's a great way of just showing superiority without having to show it overtly you know know you know what i like about what they're doing with his character yeah is that he is he is very ostentatious in a very non-ostentatious way yes is that he is you know riding horses and dressed like a old style mexican farmer you know but he isn't in tuxedos and fancy cars or anything like that but he has he's surrounded by his servants and he's always used to getting what he wants yeah you know even the way he delivers his lines and the, the the joy he seems to be having at like just messing with this guy from yeah. the beginning. And Jack thinks he can go toe to toe with him, right? Jack is yeah. punching way above his weight in terms of status. Yeah. And Noah Cross is just just completely in control the whole time. Well, and it's funny because as we said, he you know, Giddy's is kind of a peacock. He's got the yeah, outfits, he cares about how he looks. I think Noah Cross reads him in every way right from the beginning. And and he's so doesn't care. Nope. You know, doesn't care. It reminds me a lot of those people in Hawaii. You know, the, the um, I've been told from a couple of people who've grown up or lived in Hawaii, the richest people are the ones wearing flip-flops and Hawaiian right. shirts walking around. They're, they don't have to dress up to show their wealth. They already know they're wealthy. Well, I mean, I always, for, for me, it's like, why show wealth? Like, I, you know. Yeah. Because well, some people like to do that. Well, this is it, it all depends on how what what gives you a sense of your own, mm-hmm. you know, and if you really care that someone sees you in the Ferrari, then you have to drive around in the Ferrari. Right, 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 right. That seems totally uninteresting to me. <laughs> um, I mean, to me, it's like if you really enjoy driving a Ferrari and you have the money to have a Ferrari, then drive a Ferrari. Yeah. But why the why the hell would you care what people 
that they see you driving the Ferrari. Welcome to LA, man. That's, uh, no, I know. That's why I don't, I don't quite fit in with this. Status. And he says... Are you uh, sleeping with her? Come, come, Mr. Gibbs. You don't have to think about that, remember? <laughs> Which is a weird line because it's like... If you say you have to think about it to remember, you're saying that my daughter is a lousy lay. That is essentially... Are you saying my daughter is forgettable in bed? <laughs> There's That's in that line. I guess. I, I always took it as... Don't... The fact that you don't say anything immediately tells me all I need to know. It's, I think it, it's that too. If you want an answer to that question, Mr. Cross, I'll put one of my men on the job. So you can hire me to investigate me. Yeah. But but I'm not going to tell you. Mr. Gibbs. Gittis. Gittis. You're dealing with a disturbed woman who just lost her husband. I don't want her taken advantage of. Sit down. What for? You may think you know what you're dealing with, but believe me, you don't. Talk about the line of the movie. Yep. Yeah. And that's the moment. Yeah. Right? This is fun. Playtime's over. Right. This was fun, but now you're not getting the hint, so let's put this down on the table real quick. Well, here's the, th- here's the thing I was thinking of. In the classic uh, hard-boiled detective film, and this is a modern version of a hard-boiled sure, detective sure, sure. film, the, the, the detective is always kind of bungling around. You know what I mean? Whether it's Maltese Falcon, directed by John Huston. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. This is a guy who invented this genre of film, really. 1941 and Big Sleep and all those. The detective doesn't really know what's going on. He's just aggressively trying to do stuff. Mm-hmm. But in the end, he does figure it all right, all out, and he does the right thing. Even The Big Lebowski, which is this exact structure, yeah. you know, in terms of the hardball detective bumbling around, eventually does figure it all out and does eventually do the right thing. In this movie, that's exactly what is happening, except that it doesn't end that way. No, because in all those other movies, the villain is never smarter than the detective, even though the detective is bumbling around. The detective is bumbling around, but the detective is always smart. Bogart, even when he stumbles into stuff or happy accidents, always can either talk his way out of it, fight his way out of it, or reason his way out of it. And uh, I always the boss. What it's Sydney Green Street, right? You know, in Maltese, uh, in Lebowski, it's you know the dude. It's a uh, Lebowski it's in Lebowski. the wheelchair, yeah, in the wheelchair, and you know he's got that crazy manservant in Phyllis Seymour Hoffman or the wacky daughter in Julianne Moore. Here, this is a serious customer. This is a man of power. This isn't a frivolous guy trying to pull off a robbery. This is a guy operating on a way whole other level miles above whatever level we usually see in these noirs well i think that i first of all i think that's true i also think what we see mostly is jake giddy's doing exactly what you describe of fighting bullshitting talking yeah, his way sure. out of yes, every yes. every situation he is and he is certainly figuring things out in very smart ways that are really fun just like all the detectives mm-hmm. here's the thing that i think is different okay. there is no solution See, solving what the Maltese Falcon is really for or what's going on in the big sleep. Once you solve it, you solved it. You can't solve this. You can't solve this incestuous relationship in the water wars. Mm -hmm. There's no solving it. And so it doesn't matter whether or not Giddy's is good or bad or smart or not smart because this only can end in tragedy for somebody. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, And he laughs when he says you don't have any idea what's going on. He says, what do you... Why is that funny? And he says, that's what the DA told me in Chinatown. Mm-hmm. 
So this connection of you may think you know what you're dealing with, but believe me, you don't, and Chinatown. That is what Chinatown's about. Yeah. And, and Noah Cross says, was the DA right? And Giddies doesn't answer. Exactly what do you know about me? Sit down. Mainly that you're rich and too respectable to want your name in the newspapers. I love this line back. Of course I'm respectable. I'm old. Politicians, ugly buildings, and whores all get respectable if they last long enough. <laughs> that is true. Hmm? That is a true statement. True. And now he offers $10,000, twice what Evelyn is offering, to find the girl. Yeah. Why? Well, she's disappeared. It would be useful to find her. Mulray was murdered. She'd be one of the last to see him alive. Actually, Noah, you were the last person to mm. see him alive because you killed him. Um, and then this mariachi band enters, which is a very strange moment. The weirdness of it all. Really weird. Um, and he asked, when was the last time you saw Mulray? And he gets, the shots are great. So we're in a shot with Jack in the foreground and Noah Cross gets up to go look over the mariachi band that's coming in. Mm -hmm. And then we go to the reverse shot, which is kind of a weird cut because it crosses the line, which means that everybody switched sides, left and right sides. Now we have John Houston in the foreground, his face smiling as, and we have Jack Nicholson looking away from camera in the background asking, when was the last time you saw Mulray? And he says, at my age, you forget. And Jack says, we don't see his face. It was five days ago outside the pig and whistle and you had one hell of an argument. I got the pictures in my office if that'll help you remember. And John Houston's face falls. Yeah. That is a great, great moment. Well, they've been sparring the whole time. Yeah. And Houston has been winning rather easily. And then out of nowhere, Jack comes up with a winner. He, he lands a big, big punch. Yeah. It's the Russian's cut. It's that Russian's cut moment from Rocky Four. <laughs> <laughs> everything comes back to Rocky Four. Apparently, I don't know you, you know brought this. it up with on the waterfront. Yeah, I don't know if you know this, but everything comes back to Rocky Four. <laughs> right, I guess so. So here are the movies that we decided we to do next year. We said we had to do 1776 on the Fourth yeah. of July. Yes, we got to do Patton. Yes, we got to do. Uh, well, There's another one. I I thought I don't remember. Okay, but maybe we have to do Rocky Four. We have to do Rocky Four. Maybe all four of those we do in July to celebrate the independence of this country. <laughs> God bless I'm, America. God bless America. They're all very patriotic. Yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's a, okay. <laughs> so we're doing a month of a famous director in January. Yeah. We've discussed that we're going to do a month of Godfather. Yes, yeah, true. And now we're doing a month of God Bless America. Yes. I, done I, and I, done. I see it all happening. And all two right. of those are two-parters, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> you think Rocky Four is a two-parter? No, no. I, I think Patton and 1776. Uh, okay. Yeah. 76. I, I know Patton is. Yeah. 1776 I, is like two and a half hours or two is it really? 45 minutes. Okay. Yeah, it's a long music. What was the argument about? My daughter. What about her? Just find the girl. When he says the fight was about my daughter, which daughter? Yeah, good question. Good question. Yeah. See, this is the point. I think she's disappeared now. See, I don't think he had a problem knowing that his that Catherine was hanging around with Hollis. Because Hollis probably knows who Catherine is. This is a father-daughter thing between Hollis and Catherine. It's not a relationship. It's not an affair. When she disappears because Catherine is, uh, I mean, Evelyn is hiding Catherine, that's a whole other ballgame. And I think that's why he wants to find her. Wait, but Evelyn wasn't hiding. So so you're saying post-death. Yes. That's when we believe Evelyn started hiding Catherine. That's yes. what's involved. Because here's the thing. That's what I think. If the daughter that they were fighting over is Catherine, not Evelyn, yeah. which is possible, but we don't know, Yeah, that happened before Hollis was murdered. Right. So Hollis... So Cross 
got John Hillerman to pay Ida Sessions, Diane Ladd, yeah. to hire Giddies to catch Hollis in an affair. Yeah. And the woman that they catch her with is Catherine. And yeah. the day before Giddies gets the pictures of Hollis and Catherine, yeah. Cross is having an argument with Hollis about his daughter that might be Catherine. It might be Catherine. So this is all very confused yeah. to me in terms of why are people doing the things that they're doing. Maybe Hollis is shielding Catherine too from him, which I is what think, the argument's about. Well, this and well, the other question, of course, is: yeah. Is Hollis sleeping with Catherine? I don't think so. I don't think so either. I think he took. I think he came with. Look, Evelyn and him didn't have a child, right? I don't think he's ever slept with Evelyn. This is this is another key question, right? Um, I, I think that she he married her to protect her to shield her from Noah as much as possible. And Catherine, we know, has been away because, yeah. because Evelyn hasn't been her mom, but right. wants to be her mom now. She's been studying or boarding schools or whatever. That's something we find out later. Yes. And and the other thing, and we asked, like, why do you want to find this girl? And he's like, well, because I, I, I I, it seemed like Hollis cared about her, and I, I, I want to take care of Hollis. He's like, well, I didn't really realize you were so fond of Mr. Mulray. Hollis Mulray made this city, and he made me a fortune. We were a lot closer than Evelyn realized. That's very interesting. And, and and by the way, water did make Los Angeles, yes. and it did make a lot of people a lot of fortunes. If you want to hire me, I still have to know what the argument was about. My daughter's a very jealous woman. I didn't want her to find out about the girl. Well, that's clearly not true. Right. Because he hired Giddies to find out about the girl. How did you find out? I still got a few teeth left in my head and a few friends in town. And he goes, okay, I'll, we'll sign another contract. I signed a contract with you for this thing. I'll look into it as soon as I can check out some orange groves. Orange groves? We'll be in touch, Mr. Cross. So now Jake Giddies has been hired by Evelyn to mm -hmm. prove that her husband was murdered and also hired by her father to find the girl that Hollis was apparently having an affair with, according to the pictures, but right. wasn't having an affair with, according to what we believe, right. who also is both his daughter and his granddaughter. And also, he is the one who murdered Hollis while he says that he's trying to protect Hollis. And we're also afraid of Evelyn, who is very jealous. But he's implying that she's jealous of her of this woman that Hollis was having an affair. That woman is, in fact, not only her daughter, but her sister, right. and is both the granddaughter and daughter of Noah Cross. It's Chinatown, seems, John. I don't know. It seems pretty clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that is, a as we've clarified yeah. everything that is going on in this movie, I think this is a perfect time to end part one of our discussion of Roman Polanski's Robert Town, Jack Nicholson, Robert Evans film, <laughs> Chinatown. Uh, as always, you can visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for The Cinephiles. You can subscribe to us at all the usual places and leave your comments and leave your reviews. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash The Cinephiles and even suggest a movie of your own. You can buy or stream Chinatown through cinephiles.net. And if you want to, you can reach me at SR Morris on Twitter, on SR Morris one on Instagram. John, where can they reach you? You can always reach me at The Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram. See everything I'm doing there and all the adventures I'm going on. There are a lot of adventures. Yeah. Adventures coming up in a couple of days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As we're yeah. recording this, yes, Australia again. Right. I'll be in Melbourne. All right, enjoy Melbourne. Thank and you. Uh, I think that's it for this week. We'll be back for part two of Chinatown next week on the Cinephiles. Hey! 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.